What if you could learn about money from somebody on the inside who's literally been and worked for one of the largest financial institutions in the world, consulted very, very wealthy people on their money, seen the tax returns of billionaires, and then left it all to go start an education company around money to help entrepreneurs like you and I pay little to no taxes legally. And not only that, but more importantly, secure our money in such a way where we will never lose it, even if we get sued, even if the government comes after us. Not only how do we grow our money, but protect our money. If you want to learn that, then you are in the right place. And I want to welcome to the show the man who not only has done all that, but somebody who is one of my very, very good friends. We've had him on the show before. One of my favorite people in the entire world, Mr. Brad Gibb. Brad, welcome to let's, the Josh 40 Effect. Let's do it. I'm excited. And Josh, uh, I know we're friends and all of that, but it's it's an honor to be on your podcast. Thanks for making time for me. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm looking forward to the next however long we chat on this. Dude, I'm so excited for this. I always tell people, I'm like, Brad is actually a genius, actually someone like IQ level of a genius. And one of the few people that like when I talk to, I like, I feel dumb. And like, you know, you know this because you know, you, you like to hang out with people that make you feel yeah. dumb, right? Like the best place to be is when you're in the room with someone, when they talk, you're just like, wow, my mind just shifted. It expanded, right? And uh, I feel like every time I talk to you, and we've talked we've talked a lot, we've talked a lot, right? Um, but it's, every time I talk to you about topics like this, uh, particularly around the conversation of money, which is what we're gonna get into today, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited for it. And a part of the reason that I'm excited for this, particularly around the concept of money, is like, one of the things that's been very evident for me is like, I conceptually understood certain things about money. I conceptually understood th certain things about inflation. I could read books, I could read history, I could read, you know, Ray Dalio, and I could see, mm -hmm. oh, this is what happened. Oh, if you print a money, bunch of money, this happens. But like, conceptually understanding something versus actually living through it, and then being able to analyze it as you're living through it are two very, very different things. And so I'm excited to kind of dive into this topic of dude, what is going on in this world? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to put it. The topic is, dude, really? What is going on? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So I guess give us a little bit about your background. For those, for those people that are brand new to the show, brand new listener, maybe they've never heard of you yeah. before. And, and let me, hold on, let me talk you up. One of the things I learned from Russell yeah. Brunson, I was in his inner circle meeting, right? It's like, there's a significant difference where if you just walk on stage and are like, hi, I'm Russell Brunson. And if you have somebody talk you up, it's like, it just, it shifts the status and it goes. And so I know I'm, I'm telling people the psychology that we're using here, but guys <laughs> like this guy, Brad is not only something like, not only do I trust him with basically all my money decisions, but like, these are people that like Russell Brunson goes to. And like, this is a guy that like people that have lots and lots of money go to and understand because of his background in the financial system, right? How, how many, you, you worked at Goldman, right? Goldman Sachs. Don't Goldman Sachs, you're a tax advisor there. And you've been in the financial space, whether that be on Wall Street or doing your own thing or working with people in the financial space, taking companies public, things like that for how long? since day one. So I, you know, since 2008. So what are we now? That's however many years that is 14. Okay. So let's start there. Give us some background about you. Clearly 2008 was gr not a great time to get into the markets, but that's where you started. <laughs> Give us your backstory. Tell us how we got to this point here. Yeah. So like, j like just to double down on the, how much I've studied this, right? So I got a degree in accounting and then I got a master's in accounting, but as I studied accounting, I was missing the, the bigger picture, right? I wanted to see how accounting fit into the economy. 
So how do you study economy? You take economics. So I started on the side taking economics courses while I was getting my accounting degree. And then they called me one day. They're like, hey, you have an account, an economics degree now in case you didn't know. It's like, oh, great, cool. That's neat. But as I was trying to learn more about economics, I ran into the roadblock of I didn't understand the math behind what, you know, the, the equations you have to build to really actually understand this. So then I started taking the statistics courses so I could understand the math in the economics so that I could understand the accounting courses that I was I was going through. And so I ended up graduating with four total degrees, two in, in accounting, one in economics and one in statistics. But it was like the, you know, I don't know why she swallowed a fly type of a thing. Well, Brad, why do you have an economics degree? Well, it's because I wanted to understand my accounting degree better, right? And and I I just, I needed to see how all of this stuff fit together. And I was actually pursuing a doctorate in accounting or I was applying to get a doctorate in accounting because I didn't feel like I had learned everything that I that I wanted to learn. And luckily I did like sit back and reflect. I was like, okay, what, like, what do I want my life to actually be like? And I didn't want to write peer reviewed accounting papers for the rest of my life. So I was like, okay, I can't, I can't go there. I actually want to take this stuff and apply it and figure out, all right, I've got all this knowledge. How does it actually work? How does it operate? Cause at the same time, like I'm not just an academic. I actually grew up on a family farm in Eastern Washington state. So I'm very real about the world has to be practical. It has to be implemental. It has to get a result for us. Right. Cause that, that's what I grew up in. And so I wanted to marry those two ideas together. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. You say that too, because the commonality that we have is that we both grew up on farms, right? So we both understand like farming and hard work and tractors and real world, real things. And then the, 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 the funny joke that I always like to make, I'm like, if you ever listen to a, a podcast or an interview or anything, any piece of content with both Brad and I, you're learning from somebody who could not make it through a half a semester of school. And then you're learning from somebody else who got four degrees, right? So it's about the most polar opposite um, end of the spectrum when it comes to actual education on how we got here. But um, anyway, that's yeah. Continue. So, so I, I, I sat back and thought to myself, where, where, where can this theory and, and application cross over? And what, what's the center of the world when it comes to money? It's New York City, right? So I said, that's what I set my targets on. And, and uh, ended up, like I said, ended up landing a job in, at Goldman Sachs just before the 2008 meltdown. So that's when I packed up, you know, newlyweds, brand new baby and headed off to New York City. And we were working downtown New York City. And uh, as I was there, like I still remember this very vividly. Our building was right next to uh, the Lehman Brothers building. And I don't know, it was a long time ago. So I don't know if everybody remembers this, but Lehman Brothers was the pin that popped the bubble. And when Lehman Brothers, they went from a profitable business, like one of the largest, oldest financial institutions to out of business overnight. Like they closed business and they were fine and they opened the doors and they were bankrupt and no one knew what happened. And then that was, that was the mass exodus and everything collapsed. I would like walking to work, got off the subway, walked up the ramp down the street and passed the Goldman building as they were filing out with their cardboard boxes the morning that they announced. The, the, the Lehman Brothers building, not the Lehman Brothers, not Goldman. Yeah. The Lehman Brothers building, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. They were walking out. So that's so I had a fr- crazy, front row dude. seat to the, in- the entire meltdown. And it was interesting because I was in the compliance side of things. I wasn't in the trading side. I, I wasn't in the sales side. I-, I was in the in the compliance. So I got to see the crossroads of, and by that's how, dude, that's how you know I was a nerd. I turned down sales. I wanted to be in the compliance because again, I wanted to see that crossroads. So I, I, I felt like I got a really unique perspective to seeing what, how everybody was reacting to this, right? 
And, and I got to see a lot come across our department through our department across my desk at that. And so that was, again, that, that's kind of the, the, the backstory. I never stopped studying economics. Um, uh, you ever played that, that game, like guilty pleasure where like a big, you have to admit things to your guilty pleasure and like big manly men admit to like crying at the bachelor things like that. Like yeah. <laughs> mine is for about a four year time period, a, anywhere I went that I had headphones in at the gym, driving, whatever I was, I would listen to, to Harvard economic lectures. Cause I actually publish all of them. You just download them and listen to them. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And the very first vacation that I paid my own money for, I bought my own airfare. I got a hotel is I went and listened to economists talk about the, the meltdown. Like it was just, it was an economic conference. That's my guilty pleasure of like what, so I never stopped studying that. Um, and, and continue to learn that while I saw the meltdown. So anyway, that's the backstory. I left, I left Goldman, started a consulting firm. We took companies public. We were kind of CFOs for hire to take companies public. So I got to see really behind the scenes of working with, you know, the attorneys and, and the listing and, and we got companies listed. And so I got to see how that all works. Uh, and then I left that because the, it, there's a huge, and this is something that a lot of people don't understand. There is a huge difference between corporate finance and corporate wealth and the aggregated wealth of what we see as Wall Street, and then how do I get wealthy? How, how does Brad build wealth? How does Josh actually take any of these principles and apply them? There's a, a huge gap there. And that was the last one that I wanted to cross. And so I left all of that on the pursuit of what is financial freedom for the individual look like? And that's what I've continued to push through today. So lots of iterations of it and and, and different you know areas of that path. But that's, and that's still what I love and enjoy and pursue and push into because I, I feel like I bring kind of all of that background to it. But at the end of the day, what fascinates me and what, what's exciting for me is how do we take what, like you said, dude, what the heck is going on yeah. and apply it to how, how does it affect my personal wealth and my personal financial freedom? Yeah, and I think, I think that question right there, um, I think that's one of the reasons that you and I became friends and that I respected you so much kind of in what you did because um, like you'd meet, I, I would meet a lot of people like early on in my entrepreneurship career, right? Like I was this young person going out there trying to change the world or whatever. And like basically anything that was the system was the, the enemy, right? College was the enemy because it was the system. Corporate was the enemy because it was the system. Nine to five was the enemy because it was what everybody else was supposed to go and do, right? And I remember, I'll never forget, like when we sat down for the very first time, which side note, I mean, come on, like when, when, greatest story ever. For those of you that don't know, let me summarize for you. Brad saw me on the internet, saw me doing all these live streams and Brad can back me up on this. I'm not making this up. Thought this dude is the most full of crap, little millennial dude who just wants attention, which I mean, there might've been some truth around the attention part there, but right. Who was trying to make a name for himself. So he goes, we were at this event, Steve Larson's uh, offer mind event. There's like a speaker dinner after Brad's invited. I'm invited. We go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse and Brad goes, I want to sit by Josh so that why Brad, why did you want to sit by me? And this is, this is my humblest moment probably ever so that I can prove to myself that Josh is exactly who I think he is. And so I never have to talk to him ever again. I can delete him from my network and I never have to, I'm just going to prove it to myself at this dinner and then I'm out. 
And now Brad and I have worked together for quite some time. He's a client of mine. We've done millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's paid me now, and here we are. So that's fun. But anyway, it was interesting because at that dinner, though, that was when I met you. I hear about what you do. You're telling me about kind of like your process and backstory. And one of the things that you said there, right, which like it, it, it really, it like kind of like made me shift you know when russell talks about how like if you can confirm somebody's suspicions right mm -hmm. like they're gonna like you're like yeah when you go and you start telling me basically how the stock market works how stocks are valued <laughs> how people are going through and like how big money versus the typical investor gets to buy in and it's like you see in the movies or you kind of hear this whole thing about like, well, they have an unfair advantage. Or, and then you're like walking me through what they do. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, oh, my gosh. Like my suspicions that a 401k and that traditional stock market investing is the worst possible solution for me trying to get wealthy have all been confirmed. And then you went and you're like, and that's why I walked away because I wanted to build a system that allowed for the average entrepreneur, the average person like you and I to actually go out there, create wealth using the same principles that are used by the wealthy that no one else will teach. Right. And it was yeah. like, we be like, and maybe that was rehearsed, maybe it wasn't, right? But it was like, at that moment, it was like, oh, 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 you're on my side. Oh, oh, you're like one of those guys that like, you you could have stayed on Wall Street and gotten rich, right? You, like you could have gone there, but yet you came back and you wanted to understand this at a very deep level. And for me, I'm someone that like, I love learning, right? I love studying, I love reading books. I go and hang out in masterminds just to get smarter even if I'm not even gonna use the information, just so I have a better understanding of conceptually how things work, right? And so you would take things back and you would pull them back and you'd be like, here's how it all fits together, here's how it goes. And it would be like little decisions or little things that made these massive impacts that you would never know to do unless you understood it at a whole, right? And so uh, it's been interesting and it's been funny for me on my financial journey because I would say probably, probably the two people that I have learned about money the most from are, Brad Gibbon and Grant Cardone, right? Grant Cardone, just the sheer amount of volume of content that he does, right? Yeah. And, and then you, because we've worked so closely together or whatnot. But it's interesting because as I go and I start sharing these things with other people, right? You would always tell me one of your big frustrations. You'd be like, Josh, there's so much information here that if I just go and I just tell somebody do this, it's not gonna make any sense. And I'm gonna have a really hard time convincing of them this. And I was like, no, 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 Brad, I totally get it. But I also had a four hour conversation with you at dinner where you explained to me all the backstory, right? And so yeah. I would go and I would go to my mom or I would go to my friends and I would go and I'd be like, here's why you shouldn't do this, here's why you do this instead. And they're like, you're crazy. And I'm like, wait, wait, no, no, but what about this? And they're like, well, that's not true. And I'm like, well, yeah, because of it. And I would go back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like eight steps back. And I'm like, now I understand what Brad's talking about, yeah. right? And, and, and what we just spent time talking about, I really want people to understand this because it'll help understand what we're going to talk about on this and, and the prior podcast we've done and just the entire conversation I have around money is, if you're just looking for the answer, um, that that's that's the extent of where mo you know where most people want to spend their time is like just tell me what to do, right? That's where you were. Just tell me what to do, and I actually refuse to do that yes. because in that you end up doing more harm because if you don't know why you're doing it or what led to it, I can't live your life for you. So there's a couple areas where taking advice from people is super super dangerous, right? I think one of those is religion. One of those is health, right? Because your circumstances, how everything interacts and what you're trying to achieve is so unique that that's, it's, it's a, you have to discover a lot of that yourself. And the other one I think really is money. 
Um, cause no one can care about your money more, more than you are. And money affects everything that you want and are building for and care about in this world. Cause it all touches money. So be very, very, very cautious about taking advice rather than learning principles or frameworks or concepts so that then I can know what decision I'm, I'm trying to pursue. And it's not saying do it all yourself, right? But it's one of those that if you don't know what right looks like and how that, you know, what the steps are to do that, that it'd be like hiring a builder to build a house without first agreeing on a set of blueprints. Like I don't have to know architecture, but I have to have agreed upon set of blueprints that I can then look at that contract. I have no idea what you're doing, but it doesn't look like this. And I want it to look like this, right? Yeah. That's to me what so many people are missing is having that architecture in place. And that's why that's why I teach the way I do. That's why we've set up what we do. And it's why I study is I want to know what the architecture should look like. That way, now I'm actually empowered to get what it is I'm looking for. Yeah. And I, and I very much appreciate that about you. And it's always interesting whenever people come into like the cash flow tactics world or the altitude world or anything that you do in the finance stuff, wherever, right? They're like, well, like, what would Brad, you know, like, what does Brad do? Or like, what would you recommend here? I'm like, if you go to watch Brad, if you go to watch anything that he teaches or whatever, he's never going to give you specific advice unless one caveat of that is unless you pay him to sit down one-on-one, -on -one, which yep. by the way, good luck, even if you want to pay him trying to get Brad's <laughs> attention, right? Everybody wants it, right? So, but what you will do is you will give someone the lens upon which they should look at the world or look at money them to be able to then go and plug that lens into their life and make decisions accordingly. And that understanding, even though, and we'll talk about, we're going to get to the crypto conversation here, you know, towards the end, but even that talk about a hook to stay to the end there. Yeah. Talk God. about a hook, right? Casually. But like, we'll talk but about like, that later. Brad, Brad is not some, I mean, like you're not a huge crypto like investor, right? Like nope. you're right. So like for me, it's interesting because by understanding the principles upon which I looked at money, I looked at it and applied those same principles to crypto, right? And I looked at it and you go, well, that's not even remotely the same thing. And it's not, but the principles of value, what makes crypto different than traditional fiat money, right? Mm -hmm. Is un first understanding how it works at a core level. And that's why I wanna kind of transition this shift to right now, which is I think right now, and we're recording this a little bit before it will air, but today, our wonderful, no, I can't even say wonderful. Our pathetic, worthless, brain, completely incompetent president who, uh, don't even get me started. Anyway, we have now hit the highest gas prices ever in the history of the United States of America. Thank you very much, Joe Biden. Uh, but not only that, we have inflation out of control. We have the stock market that is seems to be very disconnected from reality, right? We've got the government printing a large amount of money. We've got this crypto conversation, which we'll kind of get to, but everything just doesn't seem real right now, right? Everything just yeah. seems very distorted, put it. right? And so it's like, how did we get here? And I, I, I'll let you be the one that ultimately uh, figures out the starting point for how you want to take that question because you, you'll know that better. But I, yeah. I want to specifically ask a secondary question, and maybe this is where we start, which is like, what is money, right? <laughs> like, like, because I think yeah. until we understand what money is, how it's created, how it's distributed into the world, like I think until we understand that, it's going to be very hard for the average person to understand how we got here. So I think like, I'm going to turn it over to you and, and feel free to go on your rant on however, you know, your lectures on how we ever got here. But like, how did we get to this point? Like conceptually? 
Oh, man, you're right. There's like there's a, a bunch of places to go. Josh, I do think maybe starting with with maybe not exactly what money is, although that's important. It's maybe what function it plays in Perfect. society and in a, in an economy. And then understanding when we mess around with that, then we can start to see some of these consequences. Because I yep. mean, you know, there are there are a number of roles that money need to play. Right, money is a store of value, meaning I can go like apples would make really bad money because they don't store for very long, right? So I'd have to work, and then sure I could store them for a little while, but they're they're going to become worth less over time. So that's not a great use of money, right? So it needs to be a store of value, right? Um, it needs to it needs to be exchangeable. It needs to be commonly accepted. There's there's all of these different elements of what what a true actual money does. Um, but more importantly, to understand what's going on today is what does money do for us? Why is money so important? Why do we even need it, Josh? Like, why don't you just do storytelling services for the milkman and you guys just trade and you get milk and he gets like, why, what role does money really help us help us play. So on, on a very, very basic level, um, it helps us acquire goods and services indirectly, right? Because like if, if I have a cow and you have chickens and we want to trade, that would be a direct barter trade transaction. But if I have eggs and I want bread, but the, but the baker doesn't want eggs, he wants milk, money allows us to, to trade indirectly and I can take my eggs and get money, which isn't what I want. At the end of the day, I want milk, but I can get money from somebody who wants eggs and then take that money and get the milk that I want. Does that make sense? So yeah. it increases the frequency at which we can trade. And that makes everybody wealthier because now I can, rather than trying to do, because if, if I can only trade, I probably need to do five or 10 different things. So I always find somebody that has want something that I have, right? So I can be more a more valuable trade partner. But if I can get money and then go get anything I want, I can just raise a lot of chickens and get a lot of eggs and just do that really, really well and get money and then go get whatever I want. Yeah. So we all become wealthier because money allows us to specialize and it allows us to build a complex economy. Well, Makes and sense. I think, yeah, a hundred percent. And I think one of the, uh, a good way to kind of explain that is, you know, we always hear the term, I need to get more liquid, right. Or like liquid cash. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, what do you, what do we mean? Basically money liquefies assets, right? So money takes an asset that you have, whether it is that you sell that asset from a hard asset, like a house into cash, or whether you borrow against that, because like, imagine having a house and you're like, I'd like to, I'd like to borrow against my house. Well, it's not like you can like chop off lumber off of your house. And then be like, here, I'm going to give you this. So money liquefies, right, assets yeah. uh, and allows for a medium of exchange that is much more quickly, uh, quick and efficient than trading hard assets. A hundred percent. And then to add on top of that, it allows us to have a time preference, right? To where I can raise eggs now and trade them for money and then hold on to that money for a long time and then trade that in the future, right? So I yep. can actually save now where I couldn't save in an economy without any money, without any money, we couldn't save, we couldn't accumulate, which keeps us very, very poor as well. So now I get this time preference element. And then if I'm saving for the future and don't need my money now, you as a capitalist could come along and say, hey, Brad, why don't you give me some of that money, partner with me on this, and I'll go do all this work now. And then I'll give you back more money later on. Right now, our money can actually work for us. And now money allows for investment.
where without money, we can't create investments because we don't have a time preference and our assets aren't liquid. We don't have liquidity. So all of this adds up to where now we have a functioning economy. Okay. So, so, uh, and I know guys, I know this sounds simple, but Brad, I want to make sure that we're hitting on the fundamental pillars of everything that we talk about here, right? Because you're going to build yep. off of this. I know. So yep. first money is a liquid medium for exchange, right? It makes yep. hard assets liquid, right? Yep. Secondly, it allows us to have a time preference with our money, right? Or with our, with, oh, with our value, with our, labor, with with our, our right, yeah, whether with our it's stuff, an asset yeah. or labor, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So follow up. And then that allows for investment. And, that, and then that by definition, then now that since we have a time preference, we can now take that we can and become investable. Because once again, if I have a hard asset house, I cannot invest that house, right? But now, because I have money, I'm taking that store of value. I'm making it in liquid form. I have a time preference now that allows me to go and then go and invest and now multiply my money. Yes? Yeah. Okay. Yep. But what does this all have to do with the price of gas in Biden's economy? Yes. Right? Well, all right. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. So money, the other thing money does in all of this is it's the scoreboard, right? And it's not the scoreboard of who's winning and losing, although it definitely is that. The more money I have, the more I'm winning. But more importantly, it tells us whether we're being effective in what we're doing, right? Because now let's start with some money. If I have money, I go buy resources, right? Whether that's, whether that's hard goods and services or whether it's labor, I buy those resources and then I do something with them. And that do something with them is called a business, right? I do with those resources something. And then I want to sell my output to somebody else, right? But if, if I can't sell my output for more than it costs me to get those resources, I wasted something. Does that make sense? Like yep. I didn't make it more valuable and I was yep. unprofitable. Yep. Okay. And so now prices and profits helps us understand, did we do good things or not? Like, did we improve the world or not? Right. And if I'm make, if I'm destroying capital and labor because I, I can't turn a profit, then I should stop doing that and let somebody else buy those resources that can make them more productive than I'm currently able to. And we will all be better off in that scenario. So prices and profits and, and then me getting more wealthy is, helps everybody end up winning. This is the invisible hand that you've heard referenced in, in, in economy, right? We're guided to the most effective outcomes through this whole pricing. Uh, so prices are signals of how rare something is or how valued something is or, or how important something is. And then profits are how good am I at making other people better off? And right? I would say the one caveat I would say to this though, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I know we're going to get into this, but is we're talking about the function of money as it was originally designed. Correct. Right? So this is not how money is necessarily functioning today, which we're going to get into yes. how money enters the economy and how, cause it's not yep. like we just, it's not like we just woke up one day and the U S dollar was there. It was created and inputted into the economy and then it was commonly accepted. But at a very base level, money was created to do that, right? To be a yep. medium of exchange. And we would look at back in biblical times or whatever it was, you would look at it. And as the, as I grew up, as the average person would look at money, you would say, Hey, if I have a hundred thousand dollars, and I take that $100,000 and I 
invest it into something. I wait a specific amount of time, a year, three years, five years, whatever that length of time is. And I sell that asset or I have now produced something. Is that thing that I produce worth more or less than the hundred grand? If it is worth less than the hundred grand, then we can assume that we are bad at managing assets or bad at managing our value. And if it is worth mm -hmm. more than that, we can assume that we made a good investment or a good decision to increase the overall value, correct? Yes. Now, okay. again, like you're saying, assuming money is Fixed. on top, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. So let's, I want to, I want to pause that, but let's put a pin in that for a second. Okay. I'm going to raise a question for you and then we'll come back and then see exactly what okay. you're talking about to where money isn't, if we don't know, so money isn't doing those things. If you've not already come to that conclusion, but if we don't know what they're supposed to do, then we can't look for what's broken. Yeah. In right? an ideal world, in an ideal world, how money was originally, and this is important to understand guys, right? Cause we're, I, I promise you, we're going to get to this, but like Brad and I, we always got to start with the fundamentals and the basics, right? We have to understand what it is that we are trying to accomplish with money. And maybe you're going to get to this, but like money, well, I'll, I'll let you go and I'll, I'll bring it back to this, but like, this is the fundamental basics of how money should work, right? Yeah. I should have a hundred thousand, you know, if I got a hundred thousand dollar house or a million dollar house or whatever it is, right. That is, you know, a million dollars worth of asset. And if I want to then spend some of that money or some of that asset, I transfer it into money. Right. And I can't yeah. pay somebody in portions of my house. So rather I would pay for them with that in dollars. Right. And yep. there we are. Okay. Yep. Okay. So now let's, let's look at what screws up. So the, the question I want to ask and like, think about for a second, like what is an economic recession or depression? Like what, what is that? So if, if like Josh, you're a business owner and you could make a series of bad decisions that would lead to your business going under, right? Yeah. And then you would be out of work. You would have to lay off your employees and they would be out of work. And we can see that there would be a recession or depression effect from your business going out of business, right? Yep. yep. But that wouldn't affect me, right? Just you, right. that wouldn't affect me in any way. And business owners make on their own bad decisions all the time that lead to them going out of business. So the question is that, and this is what good economists spend some time studying is to say, well, a depression is just lots of business owners all at the same time making bad decisions that lead to them going out of business. And the question I ask is like, how could they all make bad decisions all at the same time? Like that doesn't seem plausible, right? Do you kind of see where I'm going with yeah, this? Yeah. So a, a, a shift in the economics of everything going down is the entire economy, which is just a whole bunch of Josh 40s owning businesses, right? And adding up the sum impact of all their decisions. If everybody's making bad decisions, you have to say, well, what's causing that? Why? What, what would cause them all to wake up in the morning and start making bad decisions where yesterday they were making good decisions? Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yep. Okay. So the other part I want to think about here is let's take let's take track and field, right? And let's take the hundred yard dash, right? Or hundred meter, you know, sprint. If, if you changed the definition of how long a meter is and said, instead of being three feet, you know, whatever it is, 3.3 feet or whatever, and now it's only two and a half feet, what would be the result on the, on the stopwatch of the people running the race? If we took it and made a meter shorter than it is now? we would, they would get to that result faster. They would be faster, right? And we could look at it and be like, wow, what are these guys doing that they all of a sudden got faster? But were they really faster? No. You just so we just changed the measuring stick, okay? So 
take that concept back to the economy and say, well, if all of a sudden we change the measuring stick, now we can understand that, wait a minute, all these business owners using money and prices as indicators of the actions they ought to be taking, we change the measuring stick, that could lead to simultaneous bad outcomes all together all at the same time. And in fact, it's the only thing that can lead to everybody making bad decisions all at the same time is you change the measuring stick. So you have, and I'm going to, we're going to focus specifically on business owners here because we're assuming that when it comes to personal wealth uh, and when it comes to, you know, or, 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 or we're talking about business owners here specifically, right? So it's, it is, I'm a business owner and the game I choose to play with in the United States, right? The game I'm choosing to play is I am choosing the cash allocation or the cash um, accumulation game, right? Okay. Because I'm not, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to have you pay me in iPhones. I would rather just you pay me $10,000 cash rather than give me 10 iPhones, right? So yeah. I'm in this game of I have to make all of my business decisions off of how do I go and accumulate more money by making money decisions to say, hey, this is how much it costs me. This is how much I must charge. Here's my margin. I've got to go do all that. So I've built my whole business. I built all of my decisions the same way as someone in the house would, right? Around the dollar right? If you're in America, if you're not in America, whatever your currency is, we're going to use the dollar, right? So yeah. I'm making all of my decisions based on the value of the dollar, based on what I know to be true about the dollar right now. And so we're using our dollar as the measuring stick, correct? Yeah. Got it. Yes. And so, and, and just to try to make this a little more tangible, like let's say that I have multiple stages to my, to my business and it takes years to accomplish, right? Think about like, building a, a cruise ship, right? That takes a fair amount of time and I have to buy steel first. But if I, and then, and then I have to put it all together and then I have to pay labor and then I have to finish it and like all this other stuff. And then only after I've invested all of that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, then I get to charge a cruise ship passenger to then pay me to go on it. And then now I can start recouping that investment. But if when I started, right, I made the projection that, my dollar would buy X amount of wood, but I don't need that for a year because I'm buying steel now. And then I get to when I want to buy wood and my dollar doesn't buy as much wood as I thought. Now I could be out of business and screwed because I'm already into the project and I don't have enough money to finish it because they changed the, the, they changed the length of the measuring stick. And instead of buying, right, three units of wood, I can only buy two units of wood, the same amount of money. Well, I'm already into the project and I can't change anything. And now I can't complete it. Now I go out of business. Now there's an economic recession. Okay. And this happens. This is where economic recessions generally kick off are in longer term assets that take that type of decision-making. And to get a little more specific for you guys, the way they change the measuring stick I mean, there's lots of ways they do it, but the big basic one, and it's been in the news lately, if you've been wondering about it, is the Fed interest rate, right? That then cascades through that as they change the interest rate. So if I make a project and say, I can be profitable because, you know, I can borrow at 3% oh, and this will make 5%. Hold up, hold up. Okay, I skipped. Okay. No, no, interest rates. Let's talk. Because like, I think the, the one part, because as I'm listening to this, I, I know where we're going with this, right? So I'm like, okay. oh, yeah, 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 I got... I think the one part that we're missing here is okay. Like, let's talk about how money enters the enters the system and how we huh. right. Because it's like yeah. that was a big eye opening moment for me when you did your inflation workshop and you talked to me about how how the government actually inserts money into the economy itself, right? But yeah. 
talk about interest rates. When, when someone says like, oh yeah, the feds are going to raise interest rates, what the frick are they talking about? Because the average person doesn't know what that means. What, what, no, they what, don't. So, what is the interest rate? What does, that, what does that signify? What am I doing with that interest rate? Okay, so in a, in a real economy, the interest rate would just be set by the market. I have money, you want money, and we come to an agreement. There, it doesn't need to be centrally regulated, but it is now. And there is a, a Fed funds rate. And this is the rate that the Federal Reserve charges to access money from them. And then that interest rate is the rate that all other interest rates are built upon. So it becomes the base cost of money. Okay, okay. okay. So, sorry, I'm going to take this in baby steps here for just yep. a second, okay? So, back back when America started, right? We come over the seas, we fight the Civil War, we go through, we establish the U.S. dollar currency. I don't know when the, whatever the U.S. dollar currency was established, right? And so we go, cool, we need some money. Everybody's going to accept, universally accept the dollar. And the government goes, dope, awesome, we're going to print money, boom. So they print however many billions of dollars or whatever it was back in the day. Maybe it was only millions back then, I don't know, right? So the government decides... Hey, we're going to go and we're going to print money. And back in the day, it used to be, right, if I understand correctly, the amount of money that we printed was directly correlated to gold, right? Because Yeah. So so to clarify, nobody just said woke up and said everybody's going to accept dollars, right? Yeah, cool, we will. No, it right. was we have gold, but it's cumbersome and risky to carry gold around. And you so can't it's very hard that, to trade gold. We're we're going to put gold in a in a vault and then issue receipts. So that's where actually paper money comes from is, you know, one of the best examples is, is the Silk Road between Europe and, and Asia. It was risky to carry all your gold. So you left your gold with a goldsmith, right? Because they're the ones that can actually do stuff with it. And they gave you a piece of paper that said, you have this much gold. And then you'd travel and then come back. And those, as the goldsmiths got more and more well-known, you could, instead of then, then you and I would go back to the goldsmith and we'd settle up our debt. But then we'd allow it to be like, oh, I have this receipt. We don't want to go all the way back to the goldsmith. Let you just take my receipt and then you can take it to him and he'll give you the gold. Yep. Right. So yep. There's always a representation of another asset underneath it. Right. So the and government that's the way comes it along in the United States. Right. So the government at the beginning comes along and says, hey, you've got houses, right? Or land that you own. We've got gold, right? And so what we're going to do is we're basically going to go, we're going to decide on this currency, and I'm super oversimplifying it here, but we're basically going right. to go and we're going to say, hey, listen, we've got X number of dollars, or we got X amount of gold. We're going to go print these paper receipts, which we're going to call dollars, right? And we're going to hand these out to you to where if you have it, right, you can go. And before we split from the gold standard, you could literally go and take a bill and you could trade it into the U.S. Federal Reserve, correct, for actual gold, right? You could. And it was an actual gold note to where you could go and you could say, cool, this is worth X amount of gold. I'm going to hand you paper money. You're going to hand me gold because we were tied and we could only print money. The government could only print money based on assets that it actually owned. Correct? Yeah. Based so, on the reserve of gold, they had backing the dollar. So the, the government would have to go take resources, acquire more gold to create more currency. But there's a huge incentive with paper currency to cheat. Imagine you're a goldsmith, right? And you've got all this gold and you've issued paper receipts. What's to stop you from just issuing a couple extra, right? And saying you had more gold than you really had. As long as all of your people didn't come take the gold all at once, you could float extra, okay? And that happened privately, okay? But there's always a, there's always a cap on that because as people see more and more of these come out, that's, that's actually what inflation is actually called to be like, 
wait a minute, the bank of Josh, there just seems to be lots of more receipts. This is concerning. I'm going to go get my gold out of the bank of Josh. And then that would force that to come back down there. But there's no, there's no restriction on the government doing that. Right. And they, they wanted to, the only restriction on that is I could go trade my dollar and give, give me my gold right. back. Right. And so, you know, in the 1930s, you as an individual could no longer do that. And then when Nixon cut the gold tie, okay, but officially okay, hold, 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 hold on. Yeah. We're, 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 so, so fixed. It used to be when the dollar was originally created, because it's important for people to understand how we got to here right now, right? It used to be yeah. that when the dollar got created, there was a fixed amount that could enter the system, right? Because the government couldn't just print money. They had to print it with backing something. And technically, there's the Federal Reserve and there's the Treasury, right? And so there yeah. was two separate. We're not going to go into the details of that, right? But basically, they couldn't print money unless the, the government backed it with some form of, of asset. Which, and the only way they got those assets was taxing you. So I took it from you, put it there, and then the government could go do what the government wants to do, pay for the services that they have to do. So it was actually, it kept government in check to be limited by how much we were willing to be taxed because yep. that's how we gave them our actual value. And then they could go, you know, command the services the government wanted to control. But the government wants to do always more and never have a constraint. And but so that's what kept. Said, but hold on. But that's what kept the stick from the measuring stick the from changing times. drastically, right? It kept the right. measuring stick to say, "Hey, listen, a meter is three feet, however many inches, not two and a half feet, right?" Because the government couldn't just go and print more. Because once again, if and the example that I always use, right, is if if you have uh you know three cookies and you have three dollars, how much is one cookie worth? Be three, three one dollar, right? But if now I have those same three cookies and I have six dollars, how much are the cookies worth? Well, they're, they're worth two, $2. they're yeah. double. So, did the cookie yeah. change? No, the amount of currency no. did, right? So, if my currency yeah. amount is fixed, then I cannot, and I'm not cannot increase the supply of current just on demand, then the dollar amount or the value of an asset, aka the cookie, your house, your business, the goods is fixed or relatively fixed, right? Cannot drastically yes. increase. But the second so, that but, I can just go and print, sorry, go ahead. No, no, finish, finish. I was finish. Gonna say, so the second, but the second that I go and I say, hey, you know what? I now can just make up out of thin air as many dollars as I want. What's to stop, like, What's to stop you from being like, well, well, shoot, well, now it's you got fifty dollars in there or a hundred dollars in there. Now the value of that is value perceived way more dollars, but my asset didn't change. So, so let's connect a couple dots because I think this is a really good point because okay. you made the cookie analogy, right? Yep. And if you didn't look at the dollar side, because Josh, you open it up and you you started behind the curtain of, well, I had three dollars and were three cookies, then I have six dollars. And still only three cookies, so those are going to be $2 each, right? Yep. If we didn't see the currency side of that, right? And you were just looking at cookies and say, are cookies a good investment, right? You would be tempted to say, well, of course, they went from $1 to $2. So they're more valuable now than they were before. But is that actually true? No, we have the same amount of stuff, right? Value is not determined based on the number of dollars I have to spend for it. Like think about real estate. If, if you have a three bed, two bad house, bath house, that's the value that that thing provides. It provides a roof over three bedrooms and two bathrooms, this many square feet, right? So that's where when business owners or 
everybody, even consumers inside of an economy are trying to make decisions around, should I make more cookies as a business or consumers? Should I buy cookies instead of crackers, right? That $2 is supposed to signal to us how much we all value cookies, how many people are trying to make them and how many people are trying to buy them. But if we just change the money side, now we're all confused. We have no idea what's actually going on. But some of us are going to speculate and say, oh, we need to get more cookies now before they go to $5, right? And then other companies are going to come in and say, I should get a bunch more sugar and flour and chocolate chips and make more of these because I can like, and it drives behavior independent of what's actually going on only because there were more dollars in the economy. Right. And now we're making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And then that's not realized until the generally, I mean, it could be something else, but generally it's when the interest rates then change and we all see behind the curtain. Okay. And we're like, so, oh crap. Go back to interest rates here, okay? Because guys, I know there's a lot of pieces, but we're bringing this all together, okay? So interest rates are the government prints money, right? Yes. And so I have... We're not on the gold standard anymore, but we'll get to that here later. But right, so the government prints money. The government now has, let's say, a, a trillion dollars that they want to enter into the economy. Well, they can't just go and be like, here, here's it. <laughs> I guess you can't in a pandemic, but um, yeah, right. they can't just go and just give away money, right? They have to go and they have to insert that money into the economy. And right. they do that by... Okay, so what a lot of people don't understand is the government is actually prohibited from printing its own money. The treasury, our government, as we think about it, doesn't print money. I've got a dollar bill up here, but if you look at a dollar bill in your wallet, it doesn't, what does it say? It says federal reserve note, not a treasury bill. And just for clarification, guys, treasury is the government, U.S. government. Yes, and that the, is a department of the United States government, right? And the Federal Family Reserve is a separate entity. Is a separate, completely separate entity. So the cahoots that was created here when the Federal Reserve was created back in 1913, I believe, or 1970, anyway, back then, um, the what the cahoot was is the government can't print money, but it has to have money to pay for its programs. So how is the government going to get money? So they created the treasury, which the treasury is allowed to print money, but it's not allowed to spend it. So that's sort of the check and balance here. So what happens is the government, the treasury says, we need a billion dollars. And the Fed says, great, we'll print it up for you, but we'll loan it to you. So they borrow the billion dollars from the Federal Reserve, and now they can go pay for roads and bridges and all the stuff that, you know, wars everything that, that the government pays for, and they have the currency, but they have an IOU back to the Federal Reserve. And before the, before the gold standard, or before we left the gold standard, the only way that the government could go and borrow money from the treasury, right, is to go and say, hey, listen, we want a billion dollars. Here's the asset gold that we're borrowing against. So we're going to give you gold in exchange for dollars, right? Hold our gold for us. We owe you. But if we default, you've got the gold to back it up. So no problem. Exactly. But then right? when was it? 
nine in so in yeah the fetters trade 1913 the the first severance of the gold happened i think 1932 where they you as an individual could no longer trade it yeah but when was that like the actual cut when did the final cut was in 1971 or 72 when nixon to said to foreign governments you can't bring your dollars back and get gold out from us okay you have to keep your dollars so when so, that happened very simply put Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Basically, what the government did was like, hey, our money is no longer backed by the value of gold. We right. basically get to print as much money as we want, and we don't have to have any asset backing it up. And oh, by yep. the way, you just have to take our word that we're good on it. Yes? Yep. yep. So imagine going to a bank and being like, hey, bank, I would like to borrow a million bucks. And they're like, okay, what are you going to give us in collateral? You're like, nothing. I got you. And then they give you money. And then you do it again and again and again and again and again and never give collateral. That's what the government is doing now, simply just printing money to pay for the programs. Yeah. And to circle it way back to the beginning of you have to be a good steward of resources. If the government was limited in how much money they had to print and they actually had to pay it back, they would have to be good stewards and provide more value than they took out of the economy. But if I can just print the money and pay it off, I don't actually have to go do anything. I can actually can constantly waste resources, which sounds really familiar when we think about what our government does. I can constantly waste resources and just repay it by printing more dollars to then just pay everybody back that gave me money, right? Where it kept our government and our economy honest when we were backed by gold because there was a consequence to not delivering value because the government takes resources out of the economy. They hire people that can't now get private jobs. They take cement and steel to build bridges that as a private person, I can't take and go build a private business. So they take resources out of the economy. And if they don't deliver more value, then they're wasting those resources as compared to what I could do with them. And we can't ever discover that because the government just papers over it by printing the money to pay it back. So basically the government has a credit card and they keep racking a bunch of stuff up on the credit card and then they take another credit card and pay it off. And pay it off. And then it's a good way to look at it. When that credit card fills up, they take the first credit card to pay off the second credit card. And then when the second credit card or when the first credit card has a limit, they use the second credit card to pay off the first credit card. And it just keeps building and building and building and building. And it used to be that every time we made a payment, we had to put asset in, right? Gold or something. So that if you ever defaulted, boom, it all comes back. But then we leave the gold standard and the government just is like, well, screw it. We'll just keep printing money. So now going back to how do we get here? The inflation conversation, right? Is, yep. hey, there's essentially a couple of different buckets here. There is you as the individual and there is your assets and then there is your dollars, Right. And so your assets is what you own that is non-liquid. Your dollars are what you can go and spend. And as the, val as the amount of dollars that enters the economy that we are living in as a whole, as that amount goes up, do you get any more of those dollars? No. The government is just randomly spending it. So if more dollars enter the economy, the value, value perceived value, the cost of the asset does what? Going back to the cookies, right? If I own three cookies and I own, you know, have a hundred bucks. And then the government comes along and doubles the amount of money in the economy. The amount of my cookies goes up in value, right? 
but my value of my dollar now can only buy half as much. And hence we have inflation. Correct. Now, can I, can I piss everybody off even a little bit more? Absolutely, Brad. So in inflation, they're actually stealing from you, Josh, because back to the cookies, $3 free cookies, right? When the government prints more money, not everybody knows about it yet, right? So you're still just buying a cookie for a dollar and they print more money. And then the government comes, whoever gets that money first gets to spend it first and still only pay a dollar for the cookie. But now when they pay a dollar for the cookie, there's now $4 in the economy. What's the next cookie going to go for? A dollar 25 or a dollar 30 or whatever that math comes out to be. Well, there's two cookies left, $4 is going to go for $2. Well, yeah, however fast it goes right, up, right? right? right. If, the, if it was more complex, it would go up in, in increments, right? And whoever gets the money first gets the, gets the full benefit of that new dollar. But the person who buys something last is the one that actually feels the impact of the bid of that going up and the inflationary effect of it. Who do you think spends money first and who do you think spends money last? Bank, big banks and government spend the money first and the consumer post-tax paycheck spends money last. Last. So all printing, all government debt, all of this disproportionately hurts the middle class, the poor, the consumer first. And by definition, it benefits government, big institutions, those that have access, those that we like to say the phrase, those who are closer to the printing press. Those are the ones that benefit. And it's stealing from you because they get to spend their dollar now. And if you have $10 in your bank account, you were gonna be able to get 10 cookies. Now you can only get five because you have to wait to spend your money until after everybody else has. And they are actually stealing from you your, the value that you went out and worked. For. So, so now you have, and this is just so crazy. So whenever you ask yourself the question of why do politicians, why do big banks, why do people like the rich, why do they want inflation, right? Like, shouldn't yep. they understand that inflation is bad? Well, no, inflation actually benefits the ultra wealthy benefits the banks and benefits the government. Why? Because number one, they own assets. So the more money that enters the economy, the more perceived value assets go up. And secondly, the second money is printed, they get it. It is going to be a delayed time before the negative effects of that money go and have an impact on the economy. So what do they do? They get the money from the government or the government prints it. They immediately spend that money. It enters the economy. Like you said, they buy the assets, they buy the houses. Imagine you knew, guaranteed 100%, that the value of a particular house was going to go up 30 to 50% in one year. You know, 100% guaranteed that was the case. And someone came along to you and was like, hey, would you like free money to go buy this house? So you go, you take that money, you buy the house, the asset goes up in value. Who wouldn't take that deal? Right. Well, that's what the big banks and the government get to do every single time. And by the time you want to go buy that house, right? You didn't know that it was going to go up that amount, right? You didn't, you have the same amount of dollars in your bank account. So now the value of that house is just 50% higher. You have less money. Yep. And that's how we got here. That's how that, that's the mechanism that gets us into, into the mess that we have. Um, so where do we want, where do we want to go from here, Joshua? Okay. Um, well, here's where I want to go from here. 
We have yeah. this understanding, because this is the question I don't even know if you can answer, right? But it's a question on everybody's mind. It's a question I, you know, I always ask, which is how long can it last? What happens? <laughs> what happens now, right? Because let me just summarize everything that we just talked about right here, right? Government is printing insane amounts of money, and literally how they're justifying it is they're like, we got you, right? I owe you. And if you ever call our money, we'll just print more to pay for it. No big deal, right? And yep. so we print, we print, we print. The more money enters the economy, the world, the more the value goes down. Because once again, the value of the dollar collapses, the more that there is. Because if there's only yep. two cookies and there's 50 people, how many people want cookies? 50 people, only two cookies. But now if there's 50 people and there's 500 cookies, how many, like who cares about the value of a cookie, right? So yep. the more, the more volume of something, the less overall value it has. So the government's printing money out of control. Gas prices go up. Housing prices go up. Wages eh, maybe go up. Let's, you know, a little bit, right? But not nothing crazy, right? Everything gets wildly, 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 wildly more expensive. How long can we just print? And I know you don't give an, have an actual answer for that, but what happens when we can no longer do that? So here's some crazy stats for you, just because I have these at my fingertips, because I'm me. Um, there have been, I mean, based on the research I've kind of put together, there's, so behind me on the wall, you can kind of see part of it. I've got this big board of about, you know, 20 or 30 different currencies and they're all dead. They're all extinct. They all don't operate anymore. They're all completely worthless. Um, and there have been, about 775 fiat currencies that we know about in the history of mankind that we can go back and look at, okay? 775. And then somebody added up how long those were in circulation and, and retained any sort of value. They were still accepted as money. The average life expectancy for a fiat currency from decree to death is 27 years. Oh my gosh. Do you know how long ours has existed? The United States dollar? How long? As our, like everybody says it's been around for 200 years because that's how long our country has been around. It hasn't been. The dollar as it exists right now, I mean, it's changed even since this time, but really it, its last major change was when we cut the gold ties and it has been non-backed in 1972. So that means we are already double, if not more, the expected lifespan of a fiat currency. So how much longer can it last? Well, we are already living on borrowed time doubled over from where every other currency has been able to last. Well, the average currency. Yeah, the average currency has been able to last. So like what happens? So, so what happens when a currency implodes is what you're saying yeah like i don't know if there's ever been correct me if i'm wrong on this i have no idea has there ever been a currency that has had as much global significance and impact as the u.s dollar i mean no but there have been ones that have been close right romans i mean the reason why rome collapsed is they they debased their currency so they collapsed on the the tail of their currency not being able to function anymore uh weimar germany is another really popular example of a, a, an economy that was strong, that was based on a currency, they inflated it and, and then everything collapsed because of the currency. So there's been major economies that have been affected and collapsed based on, on it. No economy has ever grown as big as the United States. So no, we don't have a case study, but the Romans were the biggest at that time. They were the United States of their era and they collapsed 
once their currency. Okay, so collapsed. when you say collapse, right, we're not talking about a a stock market collapse like 0809. We're talking about an actual currency collapse, right? Yeah. Yeah. When that happens, what happens? So, like what like what is the repercussions of like what where does the value move? Who wins, who loses? That's the better question to answer, right? Because we don't know exactly how it will all trickle through and how people will respond, right? right? But we do know a couple of things. If the dollar is worthless when you wake up tomorrow morning, right? Start adding up what changes in your life, okay? So pull up your bank account balance and look at the bank account balance. That's now zero. So savers are impacted disproportionately. They're the first ones hit because they save. And when I say savers, those that save in currency, in a bank account, in a savings account, in a money market account, things that are not, don't represent ownership in something else. Yeah. So that all is gone. And that's, a, and that's a really important distinction that save in something that does not represent ownership of something else. The dollar does not represent ownership of anything. It is simply a currency. So let's just assume right. that is what we're talking about. Yep. Okay. And then step back in your life. So before we go through this mental exercise, like step back in your life and take the dollar signs off of everything that you have. Because we it helps us. Another benefit of currency is I can add and subtract dollars, right? So I can take all my assets, convert them. Even if I don't physically convert them, I can mentally convert them to dollars and see how well I'm doing, right? And that way... I can add apples and oranges together as long as I use dollars, right? But take for a second, take the dollars off of everything and look at what you actually have, right? That will then really help us kind of in this. So you can't take dollars off of dollars that are sitting in a bank account because that's what they are. So those are gone, right? But does the, does the, and then now let's look at income, right? Because a lot of people think the wage earner is impacted by a collapse in the currency. I actually don't think that they are. They're affected by inflation because every time they get paid, they their wages buy less things, right? And they're one of the last ones to adjust. So while inflation is happening, they're severely impacted and they, they are forced into poverty. However, once the currency collapses and they go to work tomorrow, they're going to say, I'm not taking dollars. So what are you going to give me for my labor? And they're going to get that and they'll go buy stuff. So actually labor, because it reprices, I mean, in a perfect world, we could reprice it daily, but it at least reprices every two weeks, right? When I collect my paycheck, if that paycheck is worth zero, I'm not going to work the next day, right? Right. So I can reprice my labor every two weeks. So in a currency reset, yeah, it's going to be, it, it, there's going to be a time period where it's really awful, but entrepreneurs are going to put it back together and start paying you in, maybe they'll go get pounds, right? And bring those and pay Bitcoin. you in that or pay you in yen or pay you in something else, right? But they're going to try to figure out a way to get them, get you to work for them. So in the collapse, savers are the are first hit. Got it? Yep. Okay. Um, the, if, if we look through it now, let's look at investments, well, okay, right? Well, actually, hold if, on though. That's a really actually interesting exercise because you look at it, you go, okay. Because I mean, I don't know about you, but the first thing that I do in the morning and I like, even before I'm in the Bible, right? Before I'm on Facebook, before I'm <laughs> anywhere else. You know, the very first thing I do, there's two apps that I check. Stripe? Nope. Price what? of Bitcoin, price of my, oh, and, my, and my business account, my cash accounts, right? 
There you go. I'll open it up. I go, whoa. Hey, did anybody scam me and take all my money by the end of the day? Like, you know, like overnight? Are there any unauthorized charges? Right? I, like, I've been making sure secure, security, right? There. And then the price yeah. of Bitcoin. Yep. Right? Price of crypto. Yep. Right? So if I were to go and I would say I value, right, my, my wealth, I, I don't go and I don't go, are all my books still on the shelf? Is my car out in the driveway? Right? I go, how much dollars do I have in the bank? How much dollars is my price of Bitcoin? So if I were to go, yep. me personally, and go, hey, your dollars are worth literally zero. Doesn't matter. You have a you have a million bucks liquid cash in your bank account. It's worth nothing now, right? Now, yep. my brain has to go. What do I own that is act that has actual inherent value to somebody else? Okay. So let's look at the stock market because too many people bring up. You bring up the crypto app. The rest of the world brings up their stock market, market app, yep. right? Oh, my life is okay because my stock account is still there. What does the stock represent? Does it represent real, true, actual value? Of course, Brad. <laughs> that, but, but no, seriously, most people would say, well, yes, of course it you does. It's, it's ownership in these companies. Well, but think about the cookie example. How do you know that the, that your, the, the portfolio of companies you own are actually adding value or how do you know they're not just cookies? And there's more dollars and there's still a bunch of people that want to own Tesla and they're getting more dollars. And so they're taking their portion of those dollars and buying more shares of Tesla. How do we know that Tesla went up or the dollar went down? And right? to, by the and way, then, the way that you would evaluate that, technically speaking, right, is you would take total assets of the company. You'd, li you'd liquidate all the assets of the company. You take the balance of whatever that is and you divide it equally among the shares and that's the true value of the stock and i promise you there's probably not a single stock that you own where the value of the stock represents that number it is a multitude above that number and and astute value investors right i follow a newsletter of value investors and they point out all these companies where their stock prices blow their book value and that's like hey that's my buy signal right because i'm just buying the assets of the company and then future operations or profit like that's how people used to invest in the stock market instead of investing based on their feelings and how progressive a company is and what they're getting you know, like there's so much future assumption now built into the market another quicker way to do it um that doesn't because you don't know, it's really hard for you to like mentally sell all the assets and know how many shareholders. Like that's pretty complex right, to be super, able to do. Super, yeah. um, an easier way to do it is you could take the stock market and price it in in something that we can't manipulate, like Bitcoin. I was going to say Bitcoin, maybe. right? <laughs> right now, the the only challenge to Bitcoin is Bitcoin has been around very long, so we don't know yet how good it is at moving. Right, independent. We we still honestly, Josh, don't know if the value of Bitcoin is based on what it can actually do, or it's, it might be a cookie also. We, time will tell. Okay. Yeah. And we've got, and I want to have this fair, be a really fair. fun conversation. Like in, in all reality and truth, you're absolutely correct. A hundred. I'm right. Right. There are many of us that believe and, different than that, but that is a belief, not an actual factual based in data. And, and you've got lots of good reasons to believe that and you might end up being right. But as of this moment in time, yep. we don't know if the price of that is based on people have lots of dollars and it's chasing it or it's because I, you know, so I'll give you this example and ask a question. The one I would use is gold only because it's been around for 5,000 years. So we just have a lot longer history of how it's performed inside of all of this. So rather than price the stock market in dollars, what if we started pricing it in gold? 
And there are actual ratios that track this. Okay. And based on the gold Dow index, the Dow is massively overpriced in terms of the number of ounces of gold it takes to buy it. Okay, but this so is, that would be an indication that it's a cookie problem. Okay, but this is actually a super interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about before. Because like, my, my, my question would be this. It would be, well, if the value of the dollar goes to zero, right? Like the US dollar actually collapses, right? And like overnight, because yeah. that's what happens, right? If When something collapses, like yep. hyperinflation, it's like out of control collapse, right? And so yep. when that happens, the value of the dollar goes to zero. What happens to the price of gold? It goes to infinity. So you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, we're... The reason people like gold is because it is a proven store of value, right? It is something that has been universally accepted since, let's arguably the beginning of time, right? So that if yep. the value of the dollar goes to zero, we are essentially guessing. You're guessing, hey, if the yes. dollar goes to zero, what is everybody else going to universally accept that would have value? And Correct. that is it's a guessing game until it happens but your your guess would be okay i'm going to look at things that have, has, have historically held value even in the face of a collapse gold silver precious metals are probably the thing that are going to be the first thing that people look to correct and yes and i want to add something to that if mm. my what i want to preserve is money and liquidity and purchasing power then yeah i would look to precious metals because of their history, right? And it's not that I'm gonna then go spend my gold coin. There's one hanging on the wall behind me in my art. I'm not, it's not that I'm gonna go spend my gold coin. It's that I'm gonna go to someone else's economy that is yes. still functioning, get, and then there will be demand for it over there. Right, because right? you're not, because you're, you're still wanting to be, like there is, just because the US dollar collapses, and yes, I understand if the US dollar collapses, the whole world's totally screwed. Like I get it, right? But like, the U.S. dollar collapses, there's going to be other functioning economies. And you're basically trying to say, hey, man, if I had a million dollars in the U.S. dollar and it collapses and it goes to zero, I can take nothing with me to the new economy, right? Right now, I can take my dollars over there and I can do an exact exchange of value, right? But if the U.S. dollar collapses, what I would rather own is an asset, an asset that I believe that I can take with me to another economy and exchange back into the value of their economy. Now, I, I want to parse something apart because it will be important if we decide to pull on this thread. If I want currency or if I want money to go then buy goods and services in a new economy, then I want precious metals, right? But don't confuse that with assets. I actually don't consider gold and silver as assets. I consider them money, right? Mm. So if I want money to then go to a new economy and reinvent myself and start another business or, or just eat, right? I need money to be able to yeah. do that, right? But if I want to go to another economy or rebuild this economy and produce, then I want assets. And here's the difference, right? If the dollar collapses and I open up my safe, I still have the same number of gold coins. If I have, and I do, just because I keep it right here, if I have a stack of currency, right? This is now kindling for the fire and I'm holding up for those seeing the video. I have a stack of currency. This is worthless in my safe. I can... I can start a fire with it, but my gold coins, I can still then go transact, Yep. okay? But if I want to produce, let's think about this way. I own real estate and I know how many doors I own, right? If the dollar collapses, do I own any less real estate? No. 
I still have the same amount of real estate. Now, why is that important as compared to maybe shares in a company, right? Well, just like the time question, will people still value? Because my stock portfolio, too many people have been trained to open up their app and see how many dollars their portfolio is represented in and say, am I winning or losing? But if the dollar goes away, Josh, you actually didn't lose anything in your stock portfolio. You still own the same number of shares of Tesla as you owned the day before. So you didn't lose anything. They just changed how it was measured. How confident are you in a new economy after the dollar collapses? Other people will still want to buy Tesla shares from you. Mm. I'm not very confident. Mm. Tesla's only been around for a little while. And I don't know how proven they are in navigating the new economy or that people will want electric vehicles or that there'll be a grid to support. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And because of that, guess what everyone's going to do? They're going to dump their shares and your shares in Tesla might be worth nothing. However, I have houses. How confident am I that people are going to want to live in houses? Fairly confident. confident yeah. they've, they've done it for a long time. And how much of someone's productive capacity have they been willing to trade for shelter? A fair amount. About a third of your income. Look at your rent or mortgage payment to your total income. Not Maybe not yours, but the average middle class person spends a third of their income on housing. Yeah, so if I want to go to a new economy mm -hmm. and replace production, I have that asset and I can just say, Dude, Josh, I want a third of your production. Mm. I don't care what it's in, but you're going to give me a third of it to live in my house. Now I can immediately switch over, get a currency that is valuable. And now my dollars aren't worth anything, but what you pay me in rent, whether it's Bitcoin or yen or whatever, I now have that and could go out and acquire what I need in the new economy. And I didn't skip a beat because I have the same number okay. of doors. I still get a third of someone else's income and I can go buy the same number of goods. Are we in a housing bubble? Absolutely. We are. Okay. So if I buy a house, so this isn't foolproof, but it's a thought exercise. Right. Okay. No, no. Keep right. Going. But so Keep like going. I'm in a, I'm in a, I buy a house right now. Let's say, right. That, by the way, Denver, where I live, you want, it's bananas, dude, Salt Lake's just as bad. Dude, okay, so you probably could guess this then. Average house cost inside of Denver City Limits. Hit all-time highs like six months ago, and it's yep. re-hit all-time highs twice now. Continue up. Guess where it's at right now? I don't even... It's over... Well over a million bucks. No, $850,000. Now, keep in yeah. mind, six months ago, all-time high was six hundred and fifty. All-time high ever. Yeah. And now it's $850,000 for the average home inside of Denver. Right? So I go right now... I buy a home inside of Denver. I'm a smart shopper. I don't buy top. I buy a fixer upper. I go, I fix it up. I pay 800 grand for it. I put 50 grand in, whatever. Let's say it's worth a million bucks, right? If the market collapses, does the value, like the value of that house is still valuable, right? But like, when I hear the terminology of we're in a bubble, a housing bubble, I think if I buy a house now, which by the way, has been my, probably to my fault, right? Reason that I'm like, I am not buying real estate right now. Uh, like this right. makes no sense to me. It's everybody, it's this. But then I see some people that are like, yo, we have a massive housing shortage. But we're not in a bubble at all, yeah. right? We have a massive, ma people are gonna be bill, 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 right? So I go and I go, what, what's the downside of me buying a house right now, Brad? Or should I buy houses? Okay, so now now you're going in because we were talking 
collapse of the dollar. Uh, right? Yeah, that's true. We're shifting subjects. But that's okay because it, it, this will actually help people understand. If I believe the dollar is going to collapse, and this is exactly what leads to hyperinflation, this thought process I'm about to walk you through okay. is the difference between inflation and hyperinflation, which leads to collapse. If I believe this stack of money in my hand is going to be worth zero tomorrow, do I care what price you're going to charge me for the house? No. No, I just want the house, right? And I will pay anything to get it because tomorrow the dollars are worthless. So I can't overpay for an asset in hyperinflation because there isn't anything on the other side. Now, if we shift back to just inflation and a boom and bust cycle, okay? Because people are saying a housing bubble is not the same as inflation. Right, right, right. I understand that. Yep. They're now trying to make it local to housing and say, we're in a boom and there's going to be a correction, but the dollar's going to survive, okay? In that scenario, if you believe we're in a bubble, then the benefit of waiting is waiting for it to come back down. And then it does take me fewer of these to get the same asset. And I'm assuming so there though, dollars, that I'm assuming that the dollar is going to make it in that scenario. Exactly. Okay. And that's, that's the tough point, so, right? So <laughs> those waiting for housing to come down, then you're looking at all those factors of, and you just said it, people are going to build, 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 build. What's that going to do to supply? It's going to increase supply. What's that going to do to price? As supply increase, what happens to price? Price eventually goes down. It comes back down. Okay. Okay. So it's basically timing. Unless, but hold on. This is where it gets fun. Okay. Yep. Basic economics would say if we increase supply, it will ease the price pressures that are happening. But as prices and housing comes down, what do the government say? We can't let housing correct because that hurts the American economy. So we're going to print enough dollars so the price doesn't come back down. So they're going to introduce cookie problem to the housing and say, as what should happen to make houses more affordable, they're going to undermine that and say, under no circumstances can anyone's house ever go down in value. So Josh, I'm going to give you money that We're you so didn't earn so, so you can go buy the house of your dreams. Okay. So here's the, <laughs> I was going to say million. And that is what I believe has been happening in housing lately is they've since 08, they've made the commitment that housing will never go down again. And so they're printing or finding every way to give you enough paper dollars to be able to go afford that. So here's the question, the million dollar, trillion dollar, I was going to say million, but it's trillion, multi-trillion, the generational question. Is the dollar going to collapse or is it going to make it? Okay. So here's, here's the caveat to predictions. If you, you can either make a time prediction, but not really know the outcome. You can say, we have 10 years until that happens, but I don't know where it's going to go. Or you can say it will happen, but you won't be able to pick a time period. If, if you line up those two, you got lucky. Right. So right, right, right. without a time period, the dollar will collapse. No question. It has to. And we've already started to cross some very important thresholds. Certain things of like the, the debt to GDP ratios have hit. No other economy has ever sustained the debt to, 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 GDP, to, right? to GDP ratios that we have, the percentage of the interest cost on our debt to GDP, we crossed some important thresholds just in the last two years on that. So we're getting a lot closer to it. So without question, the dollar is already on life. It's already dead. It's just on life support and they're keeping its vitals alive, but it's dead. It is gone. It does not exist. And every decision you're making, if you're only making it based on price in dollars, you're making the wrong decision. When, dude, I thought it was going to happen a long time ago. So I don't really know 
when it will possibly happen because it seems like they always have another lever. But mine is the dollar is already dead and we're living in a zombie economy of dead dollars. Okay, I want to spend less than five minutes on this next piece here because then I want to move to crypto. Dude, what does someone do? Do they buy houses? Do they, do they, like what, like I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm looking like, I look at someone like me and let me tell you, I have found, <laughs> if there's one thing the internet has taught me, Brad, is that apparently I'm not normal, all right? Like, everyone's <laughs> like, oh, Josh, you live in your own little bubble world over there. And I'm like, I don't know. I thought I was pretty normal, but no, I'm not, all right? I I, I know for me personally, I'm going to be okay. My, my wife and I are going to be okay. Solid head on my shoulders. I have a great relationship network, yeah. right? I understand where real value, real currency lies, how to create it, whoop-de-doo. So whatever happens, happens, cool, right? But- for someone like me, for someone who's making, you know, decent money, they're trying to invest, they're trying to figure this whole thing out, they're just trying to, like, do you buy a house? Do you wait? What do you do with your money? Okay, dude, and you already answered it. I'm just going to pull it out of out of what your little quick ramble there, okay? First, if you're looking for assets to save you, they're not going to save you because you don't know what assets. Like, the government could Except do something really stupid like... <laughs> Which well, the, but except the government could do something really stupid, like throw you in jail if you have Bitcoin. Is that going to be a solution? Ugh, right? Or same with housing. They could cap housing prices. They're, they already do it. They've already talked about it. Or make it illegal to own gold and silver, which they've done in the past in this very own country. It was illegal to own gold and silver. So there's lots of things they could do to screw it up. So I would go back a level, Josh, and do exactly what you said. If you are a producer and you can give value that people have always wanted for a really long time, then you will actually be okay. The consumer side are the ones that are going to wiped out. So the, the things there to me, there are three solutions. One is production, right? If you have the ability to generate and dictate the income that you produce, then you can shift that production to the new economy, the new currency, the new whatever, and you can move it it never perfectly, right? But you at least have a lot better shot of moving your income as a business with inflation than you do as, as a W-2 employee. So that would be, if I, that's the first thing to get figured out is how do I make more money? Not earn more money. How do I make it in a business? Second is assets that have proven over it. And this is my caveat to it, right? You can take based on, you know more about crypto than I do. So you may be using the same fundamentals I am to make decision on crypto, but something that has enough proven value that will also span it. So take those dollars that you can produce. But if you can't produce, don't look for assets to save you. Produce first. Invest in yourself first. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I uh, just had a newfound appreciation for is the value of an email list. Uh-huh. Value of a contact list, right? Because like, imagine... I'm at, like, for me, I used to have a much larger email list than I do now. I'm in the process of rebuilding, right? I still have a, a comparatively to the average person, my email list is it's large, is, right? But well, because the average person has their mom's email address and, three and that's about friends. it, right? But I would also say my Rolodex book of people that I could open up in my you know phone and I could contact, whether that be you or Russell Brunson or Catherine Jones or Steve Larson, right? And like having a relationship with them, right? But having that email yep. list, the ability to contact 4,000, 7,000, 20,000, 50,000 people 
you are going to be able to find somebody then that has something of value and that you have something that they want, even in a down economy. And I think that is a really good takeaway from that. And then they're going to be go like, let them, I mean, let them solve your problems. Let them go get the, the currency that's going to exchange and you just require them to pay you in that instead of whatever else. Yeah. Okay. So production is first. Second are assets with, with a, a value independent of the dollar. I'll okay. say it that way. Right. That human beings value whether they value dollars or not. That's why I stick to gold and silver. Well, gold and silver is more the currency side, but gold and silver, houses, physical businesses, like stuff that's going to be around, okay? Or even email lists, right? Email, yeah. Networks, who you know has always been valuable, yep. right? Just read the Bible. Why did people like Egypt? It's because they had a lot of grain. If you had connections, you were okay in the next famine, right? Like forever, it's who you know, right? So those types of things, yep. right? And crypto may may very well fit into that. So, let's talk crypto. Right? Let's talk crypto. Let's move the conversation that way. Well, yeah, but then third, I guess third is is where I would put gold and silver and crypto, right? Capital to rebuild, right? Those would be the three yep. areas that I would be looking at to protect yourself. Okay. And if somebody just says blanket statement, crypto will protect you, it won't. If you're not smart enough, you don't know, like there's all of that. So it's production, productive assets, and then your liquidity or your 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 capital. Yeah. That's my quick answer. Yeah. Good enough? Yep. Yeah. Sweet. So crypto. Where does crypto fit into this equation in your head? And let me let me caveat this by let me let me define crypto here yep. for a second because there's a couple there's a couple of misconceptions around crypto, right? There is the way that I look at crypto. There are three types of crypto. Okay, cool. The first type of crypto, and and, and I understand this isn't actually a hundred percent true. There's really two, right? But there is Bitcoin, and then there's everything else. The way I would caveat okay. it is there is Bitcoin. There is Ethereum and there is everything else. And the reason that I like to make the distinction between Bitcoin, Ethereum, and everything else is Bitcoin is the only, the only cryptocurrency that is universally accepted to be property, not currency. Okay. So okay. universally, because fixed amount, there will never, ever, 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 ever be more than 21 million mined Bitcoin. There will never be more than that. There's a okay. fixed limited supply, 21 million, that's it. And Bitcoin in and of itself has no other inherent, like you can't do anything else with Bitcoin other than it just sits there and you can transfer it back and forth. And there's okay. massively, massive amounts of value in that, which we'll get into here in just a second. So think of Bitcoin as, I'm not trying to build on it. I'm not trying to integrate it with things. It is property in the sense of, it is fi a fixed amount, I can transfer it. That's all. I'm not building anything else on it, right? The second is Ethereum. How Ethereum is so much different than crypto or Bitcoin is Ethereum is the second largest currency and it is the currency upon which almost everything else inside of the crypto world is built upon. So think data, contracts, NFTs, any form of a use case utility of crypto is built on the Ethereum network, right? Now I understand okay. there are other networks that 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 function like Ethereum, like Sol Solana, right? That's a similar, much much smaller. Like I'm talking like Ethereum eats up like nine. I don't know what the exact percentage, is, but it's like probably ninety to ninety five percent of all the stuff lit, like data contracts, things of that nature, live on the Ethereum network, right? And then okay. third would be all of your other cryptos, which this is 
altcoins, right? This is gaming cryptos. These are contracts, all the other things inside of crypto that are separate that typically run on Ethereum blockchain, but they're technically still separate from it, right? So when I look at crypto and I look at the world of crypto, when it comes to money, I look at Bitcoin, when specifically money slash finance, let's say, right? Because money, when we're talking about money, money is actually a very specific thing, right? So finance, right. I'm looking at the world of Bitcoin specifically as like, a form. Yeah, payment processing, right. every, all the functions that money performs. Right. You would look at Bitcoin. Yeah, now that's, and what's interesting is because Bitcoin's not, it's not even currency though, it's property, right? It's, I'm talking about store of value here, right? So gold. Right, exactly. Digital gold. So actually a fundamental requirement for a good money is that it is property first before it was anything else. Right. And then it has other qualities that make it also good for money. And I'm going to correct you in favor of Bitcoin when you say it's worth it. It has no other value. It absolutely does. The privacy and the ability to transact. Okay, that, and that was the other is piece. Yes. And that is what makes Bitcoin so valuable, right? Because inherently, inherently, inherently right. it, its ability to do right. that. Yeah. So you look that's, at because I can't, I can't send my gold to some dude in South America. Right. Like that, I, I can transfer. And the analogy I always use about this is how much would it right now, Brad? How much would it cost you to send one billion dollars? in any form of US dollar or gold to China right now? How much would it cost and how long would it take? Yeah, too much and too Too Wait, I can send a billion dollars in Bitcoin over to someone in China in 30 seconds for like a buck. So it has inherent value. It's property outside of money. Right. And it has the other things. It, it can't wear out. You can cut it into very small pieces, right? Because that's also very important in money. It's divisible. One Bitcoin is the same as another Bitcoin. So they're fungible. That's a technical term for it. So it does. It has all the quality. Of exactly and it's fixed amount. About. You cannot duplicate it. This is incredibly important, which, by the way, by definition, which is why you don't want to have it as a currency, right? Because think you... But technically speaking, right, you, and this is why like Elon Musk was like Dogecoin, right? Dogecoin is going to be the currency of the internet, right? Now, I'm not saying that that's actually going to be, it was more of a joke, but Dogecoin is inflationary and you actually want somewhat of an inflationary, very short, small amount of inflationary or otherwise people wouldn't spend it. And we, we, well, we won't get into this. I actually strongly disagree with that. That's, that's something that modern monetary theory would tell you. It's not actually true. It, your money supply doesn't have to expand as long as you can cut everything into smaller and smaller pieces. And technically you could okay, with do one billionth of a Bitcoin. Yep. So it doesn't, you can make more of it by cutting it into smaller pieces and still transact. And actually the healthiest economies on the planet are deflationary economies. The only sector in the US economy that's healthy right now is the tech sector. And think about it, you get better and better iPhones, but they charge you about the same amount for it. It's actually deflationary. Right, mm. because of that, you're buying so the price might go up a massive bit, the value you're getting from it is substantially higher than the small increase of cost. Got it. Then the small. I mean, think about how much more powerful iPhone <laughs> one is versus. I mean, iPhone fourteen versus one, and they're not that much apart in right. price. Right, even though there's been this much money printed, so technology is actually deflationary, and so Bitcoin to me checks all those boxes. That's great. Right. I love it. So when people look at crypto, they look at NFTs or crypto as a whole or all the different things and are like, oh my gosh, you know, it could go up or down or blah, 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 blah. When I look at crypto, let's just divide it for the simple, for the sake of this argument, let's just do it into two buckets, right? There is Bitcoin and there's everything else, right? Everything else, okay. So I look at 
crypto, non-Bitcoin crypto, as the future of how things are going to be built, okay? So when you look at companies, when you look at the internet, and you look at all the different things and softwares and everything that were built on top of the internet protocol, if you will, right? The internet as it exists. Now I can look at that and I go, okay, where the future of the world is headed is crypto and blockchain. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care, like, what, what's his name? Warren Buffett's partner. What's his freaking dude's name? Charlie Munger. Charlie, Charlie He's Munger? like, ah, oh, yeah. crypto is evil and blah, blah. Screw you, dude. You're a 97-year-old dude that does not understand the internet. I'm like, I I know that's like, Josh, you're an arrogant 28-year-old, right? Like the future of the world is headed towards the the blockchain and where we're going. So when you look at it from that perspective, I go and I say, if I were to go and put my money in some place, why would I put my money in the stock market that's already here when the future of everything, it's like investing in tech stock back in, you know, the 2000s, right? So from a perspective of building and assets and things of that nature, if you were going to go buy companies, invest in assets that are going to build, you would invest in Ethereum-based or crypto-based companies, right? Or crypto-based projects, right? The second half of this is specifically Bitcoin. And this is where I want to focus on with you specifically here, right? Because Yes, there's always opportunity, just like there's opportunity in the business space now. But if the value of the dollar goes to nothing, all of these crypto, these little cryptocurrencies that I own that, you know, I put in a thousand bucks and now they're worth eight grand are about to go to zero real darn quick because there's no inherent value if the, you know, the dollar collapses, right? But Bitcoin is not like that, right? Bitcoin is this, this fixed asset that is a store of value forever. It's completely secure. It's unhackable, right? I can transfer it anywhere in the world at the speed of light, right? Speed of electricity. I can do it for almost free. I lose no energy costs in the process of it. Why, why would that, like, why wouldn't everything go to that? Why not buy that asset? Okay. I'm, I need to reframe Perfect. one thing to, be able to answer that question, right? Why are you buying it now? As opposed to tomorrow? or a month from now? Like why now? Well, me personally, I believe the value is gonna go up over time because I think it's severely underpriced. Okay, so I wanna pull this apart for okay. just a second. This is where I actually struggle in the conversation of Perfect. crypto. If, if everything you just said about, crypt, about Bitcoin is true, then my position on it is by definition, it's a terrible investment. There is a difference between an investment and a store of value. Fast forward a thousand years and all of the, at the entire world as we know it has died and been reborn and no countries exist that exist right now and no currencies to do, but Bitcoin is still around, yes. right? If we do that with a gold coin, right? And I held that gold coin for the last thousand years, that gold coin buys me the same amount of stuff. So doesn't matter that it went up in price or changed this or more demand or whatever happened in the world. If it does its job, it buys the same amount of stuff today, a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago. Okay. So if that's true about Bitcoin, if, if you're going for the same effect as gold inside of Bitcoin and a Bitcoin buys me the same amount of stuff today, tomorrow and a thousand years from now, why buy it now? Because... 
of the current state of everything that's going on right now? As, as a hedge, okay. But what is still unanswered for me is if I take, I know what $50,000 buy, what, what's the price of Bitcoin? Mm, like 39,000, I think right now. 39,000. I know what $39,000 buys me today. Yep. If I put it into Bitcoin mm -hmm. and the economy collapses, what will it buy me on the other side? I, I don't know. Will it buy me the same $39,000 worth of stuff that it will buy me today? If, does that make sense? I don't think like, so. Here's why. Because, because, because the amount of people that are using, the amount of people that want gold right now, everybody understands the value of gold, right? Pretty much universally across right. the world, you could go to anybody and be like, hey, does the gold have value? Do you want gold? They'd be like, yeah, right? So if I know that everybody wants gold and I take my money, I exchange it for gold, it's fixed amount, everything goes up and down, whatever, however, right? Right now, there is a very, 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 very small percentage of people in the world that under truly understand the value of Bitcoin. They don't understand what it does. Okay. They don't understand the how it works. They don't understand why it has value. They don't understand how you can literally go and store, transfer, trade, you know, secure wealth, right? It, the government okay. can seize everything, any asset that you have except for Bitcoin. They can't seize Bitcoin. It's impossible, right? And by the way, I can store the keys to Bitcoin in my head, right? So think about it. Imagine I destroyed everything except for the, my key to Bitcoin. I got a billion dollars in my Bitcoin wall. The only way to access it with the code inside my head and the government comes up to you and points a gun to your head and says, we want your money. And you go, no, kill me. If they kill you, they have nothing. You're, you're, all your wealth just went to the grave with you, right? It's a pretty, that's a pretty revolutionary concept, by the way, right? Because if I have a house, if I think, right? If I shoot you, now it's mine. I can just seize it, right? But if I take that, right? So because so many people do not understand the value of this particular asset, Bitcoin, right? When everybody does want or does understand that, which when the trend of the world is headed towards crypto, right? Everything is going to blockchain. Everything is going to the, the ability to be able to track all these things, right? So when, when the world does see that and everything starts transacting in that technology, all of a sudden the base layer of where that becomes equal to whatever, because right now, like we have a fixed amount Gold is worth X due to everything here because everybody wants gold. Well, everybody doesn't want Bitcoin right now, right? There's only a small percentage of people. Well, what happens when everybody universally in the world wants Bitcoin? Now, I understand that's a bet, right? But that is why you buy it because yep. I think the value, I mean, the value of Bitcoin, I go well, well above a million bucks. And what I'm looking at is, listen, when I buy Bitcoin now and it goes above a million dollars, that million dollars of Bitcoin is going to buy me a lot more than that was going to buy me now. The value of Bitcoin is going to increase much faster than the rate of inflation. That would be my argument back. Does that okay. make sense, bro? And it, it does, but you're missing a fundamental piece to what currency actually is. And now you're confounding speculation and investments with currencies. Okay. The, the side of it that you're missing is if you're if you're making a bet that Bitcoin is currency, which you just got done explaining no, to Bitcoin's me, property, then you're yeah. undermining your exact argument that you just made on the second part of it. Because if no one will trade the currency, it's by it's by default fundamentally not valuable. 
if no one will give up their Bitcoin in exchange for a good or service, it's not actually a currency and it won't do all the things that you just said it would do. Well, sure. Eventually, the other side of the it. equation, Josh, once everybody wants Bitcoin, there now how many things can you buy with Bitcoin? In theory, anything that you want. But go to go to Walmart and try to spend Bitcoin. You can't. I mean, right? I can spend Bitcoin so, at Starbucks and McDonald's in El Salvador and in other places of the, of the world. So it's massive. Okay, great. But I have to go to El Salvador. I can't go down the street to do it. But what you're missing is, well, what happens yes, when you're, you can, you're just, well, that, that's where I'm going. And you're missing that. I believe you're missing that part of it. You're looking at everybody's dollars chasing a fixed amount of Bitcoin. And supply demand would say the price of that to get one of those Bitcoin when everyone's dollars are chasing it is going to go up. However, when everybody also now simultaneously wants to spend it on now a global economy, now the speed of transaction is going to bring the price down to then there's now it's chasing a lot of okay, goods, but, but just like gold does. Okay. So here's where I'm getting confused. I, I understand what you're saying. And I understand like when you're saying like, it's a store of value, not an investment. So conceptually, I understand what you're saying there. And I would agree with that in theory. But I would also say that the uh, the rate upon which the value of Bitcoin will increase will far surpass the rate upon which inflation or any other currency will right. increase. So I believe it is a store of value, but I believe it is a store of value that is significantly underpriced right at the moment. So help me figure out that. What's that? And I would just say you, there's not enough history to know. Okay. And so, but I mean, I can't disagree with that, but I also don't agree with it, right? Because you don't know how much this will purchase or what it does or how it's going to be accepted. All you're doing is making a speculative bet that when things reset, there'll be more demand for, to, for people to acquire Bitcoin than there is to spend it. Right. But you're, are, you not, are you not making the exact same assumption about property? Or gold. No. Well, yeah. Okay. Let's say that I am. Well, I have 5,000 years of history on my side. You've got 10 right. years. So, so that's maybe right. the difference. And I think that is the difference. And so I'm saying I've got 10 years of data, but I'm looking at everything as a whole and I'm going, okay, look, look what happened with the internet, right? Look what happened. Now you have the largest social media platform and company in the entire world changing their name to go into the metaverse, right? Gaming, Everything is going digital. Everything is coming online. Cryptocurrency, specifically the blockchain, is what allows ownership in the digital world, right? The only fixed asset in that world, which is where everyone is going, where money and attention is flowing, is Bitcoin. And the value of Bitcoin is not just because it exists, but because it is secure, but because you can transfer it at the speed of light, because nobody can seize it, because it is digital energy, right? So you're taking that and you're making the assumption of bet of, okay, look at the world as a whole, look at where everything is going, un unless you're going to collapse all of the internet, all of the metaverse, all of everything that's where the future is going, then by definition, or by, one could logically conclude that the likeliness, there's nothing 100% absolute, the likeliness that Bitcoin will insanely increase in value comparatively to any other asset, I think is a, a, a relatively safe bet. Is it not? Uh, and 
and you're challenging my ability to, to explain it in words, but you're still missing the side of it that once Bitcoin is chasing every tradable good in the economy, its value actually should go down. Right, but that's like, that's like millions of dollars. But what's value, Josh, where you're getting hung up and what I want to try to okay. unpack is you've slipped back into saying you're valuing Bitcoins in dollars. If dollars go away, what is the value of your Bitcoin that you're amassing? 21 million divided by 7 billion people's assets. To, well, but in your conversation and in your thought process, I'm trying to pick yeah, this no, apart yeah. to help us like think about this yeah. better because I don't think I even have an yeah, answer. Yeah. But your brain is still going back. At least what I'm seeing in your logic is I have a Bitcoin. It will be worth a million dollars. I can turn that Bitcoin back into a million dollars and go buy a million dollars worth no. of stuff. Oh, well, I mean, sure. I mean, I could go buy a million dollars worth of stuff. What I'm saying is I want to, this comes back to the store of value. I want to store the value that I have right now. I have $15,000, $100,000, okay. $5 million, whatever it is. I want to store that in a place that is going to increase in value over time. No, stop. That's your problem. A store of value does not increase in value. An investment or a speculation does. So when you're making the fact that everyone is going to use Bitcoin to transfer, to, to exchange goods and services like chicken and milk, right? It by definition should not change in value. It needs to be a measuring stick that is always 12 inches. What it? Every Bitcoin million. is always 12 inches all the time. And I always buy the same amount of stuff. But now you're bringing back in this this other side of the demand and the newness of it and saying, well, it will, it will constantly buy more and more stuff. And if not, that's not true, forever, then never no, 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 not forever though. At some point it will level off. At some point it will say, okay. this is, this is everything, right? Like that. Okay. So that point you are, becomes what more you value. are doing is making a, then what you are doing is making a speculation on that time frame, and you will exit Bitcoin into something I, no, else. I will not, no, it, I, I put the Bitcoin that I hold. Okay, so let's take stop. This is okay. fun. If you hold on that you will never exit your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin's worthless because it will go up to a point and then you say it will level off. And then that's time, me. simply by time preference, will it will be worth nothing because you'll never but get that's rid of me. it. I mean, sure, I'll sell it if I need if I needed to liquidate and like if I act like if my Bitcoin was worth $10 million and I wanted to buy a million dollar house, that was the only put actually probably then I wouldn't even do it. I would just borrow against it. Why don't I just borrow? No, but see, if if every if no, if what you anticipate actually happens, and dude, I don't have. No, no, I understand. I'm, this is fascinating. I'm learning. But what I'm trying to expose is we're bringing people don't understand money in an economy, and so what will I expect? It will peak and crash, and then will be adopted as currency. I mean, that and like so if you time. if you want to arbitrage that. Do it all day long. But if you're never going to get rid of your Bitcoin, you don't truly believe the dollar is going to be devalued. You don't truly believe the currencies will go away and Bitcoin will dominate. And if you don't truly believe that, then the entire rest of the world doesn't believe it and no one will ever buy it. And what you want to happen won't no, happen. No, but people will buy and trade Bitcoin. I'm saying me specifically. I think people will buy, but, like but, they buy and trade but, gold. But what you're missing is... For your thing to happen, everyone else has to also believe it. And you have to start having your customers pay you in Bitcoin. And if every customer pays you in Bitcoin, how are you never going to get rid well, of it? Because you have to eat. Well, sure. I'll, if, I'm, if every single piece of money or 
value asset coming into my life was in Bitcoin, then yes, I would exchange that into some other form of currency that allows me to go and eat. And I say you want your foot in both camps where you believe Bitcoin will take over the world, but it won't because I'm still going to charge for my services and another thing and do that and then keep adding to this and it's just going to happen for infinity. Well, Josh, no tree goes to the sky. So at some point, what are you going to have it do? What do you mean? Now, your argument about Ethereum is starts to interest me, right? And let me pause that and let your brain sit on it for a second. Because to me, I, I have to contrast it with Ethereum. I, I'm going to say, I don't know anything about it. Based on what I've learned from you, Ethereum to the money and finance and transaction space is like a house to the rental space. If I own the house, I get to monetize the traffic. Yeah. Is that not what I oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, repeat that one. If I own an Ethereum, oh. am I providing transaction space to the marketplace that I get a charge for? If like, you, if to, you provide to, to use the block and dude, I am so ignorant. I don't even so, know. So you 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 pay on the Ethereum network, you pay it what's called a gas fee to perform a transaction. So super, 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 super basic 30 second lesson and basically how the blockchain works specifically on the Ethereum network is in order for me to go in order for the blockchain to work, there's these things called miners there, you know, there's computers, right? I can, you can own one, I can buy one, whatever it just mines it. Right. Right. And in order for a transaction to go through, it has to be validated by a bunch of miners and that then puts it on the blockchain. It becomes a piece of data that can never be changed. And in order for me to perform a transaction specifically on Ethereum. I mean, this is true for all of them basically, but I pay a small percentage of that transaction to the miners in order for that to work. So I can make, if I own Ethereum, if I, it's not owning the Ethereum that pays me money. It is the use of Ethereum that when I spend Ethereum, whether that is in a currency form or in an asset form, like an NFT, right? I'm going to pay a small percentage to the person that is validating that transaction. So that is, but can you be the one getting paid by owning Ethereum? If I'm not simply by owning Ethereum, unless I use it, unless I go to a, an exchange and I just use my, I can get paid for using my Ethereum as liquidity, but just by okay. sitting and ho- owning Ethereum, it does, it does not go up in value. No. I mean, it does. Okay. If the market goes, I mean, if the cost of it goes up, but I don't, people are bidding on it right. and it's just like a stock or just like anything else. Right. But the value okay. of the, cause, cause the uh, Ethereum is the, is the crypto on the Ethereum network. And this is what people don't understand. There's the Ethereum network and ETH ether is that technically it ETH is the currency of that network. So help me understand it in this terminology and dude, like, I'm genuinely want to yeah, learn yeah, yeah. this yeah, yeah. little element of it because I think it will help the other side. Because yeah. everybody likens it to the dot com, like the, the internet, right? But my argument is, Josh, you don't own the internet. So yes, the internet revolutionized everything, but we still had to be correct about which companies would benefit the most from the use of the internet and invest in those. Pets.com is a great example, right? Everybody put a bunch of money in pets.com because of the internet and it had a .com after it. And then they were wrong about how how beneficial the internet was to that particular company. But if you're telling me I can own the internet because only 
AOL, right, back in the day, owned the internet and leased it out, right? Comcast today is who I pay for the privilege of the internet, but nobody actually owns the internet itself. Okay, okay. But so how is it not, how is it different than being correct about which companies and how that's going to benefit? And then I can actually be the one that benefits from it. Okay, like, how is it different? I'm going, to send you, I'm going to send you a book. It's called Token Economy. You should understand this. So the difference between there's, okay. there's, oh, and I'll admit, I've not read this. Yeah, so I'm yeah, not yeah. trying to pull, I'm genuinely trying to understand. So there's like cryptocurrency coins and there's cryptocurrency tokens. Okay. So the difference between say a token and a coin is Ethereum is it runs on a blockchain. Bitcoin runs on a blockchain. There are different blockchains. Okay. They're not the same blockchain. Got it? So when you hear blockchain, there's thousands of blockchains. Okay? Right. So it, Bitcoin runs on its own secure network. The Bitcoin blockchain, boom. Ethereum, Ether, uh, Ethereum is the name of a blockchain. It's the Ethereum blockchain. On okay. that, the currency of that blockchain is Ether. That is a coin because it is specific okay. to that blockchain. Underneath okay. that blockchain, there can be millions of coins, millions of currencies made up. So, for example, I own a, a, a cryptocurrency called Bytes. Bytes Got it. is a subset of the Ethereum blockchain. It runs on the Ethereum blockchain, but it is a coin un underneath it, but it's not, it's not called a coin, it's called a token. So even though it functions as a currency, coin is native to blockchain, Token is native to project. Got it? Okay. So when okay. I go and I buy a crypto token, I am buying a piece of said project. Similar to a stock in a company that runs on the US dollar. Make sense? Or runs on the US network. I would have, I would have said similar to a company that runs on the internet. Perfect. Run, except there's different types of internet. But yes, yes, we can use that analogy, right? There, there, just like there's different kinds of blockchain. Sorry, there's not there's not different kinds of internet. There's only one type of internet. It's just internet, right? Okay, gotcha. So like, yes, okay. in theory, yep, right? That might be different. So if I start a company, okay. I actually interviewed a guy on this podcast, aired Mad Energy, right? He built his company and instead of issuing shares like you would to buy it's stock, he issued like you can buy tokens. Crypto tokens okay. the more people that buy just like on a company the more the value goes up so on the ethereum network or in the non-bitcoin sector what you're trying to find is you're trying to find projects upon which you buy into that you could then own right the thing is though okay. is that i own that Nobody can take it from me. Nobody can seize it from me. I actually own what? I own the token. It is in my wallet, right? Nobody okay. can take that away from me because it's validated on the blockchain. Okay. A stock, right? Okay. Like the government can come in and be like, all right, we're going to seize your stock. Or the company can be like, all right, no more. But you just take it away, right? But the token is a okay. programmable contract that it can't be reversed because it. it's on the blockchain, right? Understood. So, so what you're doing, however- go ahead. So with your friend's company, or the, the guy you yeah. interviewed, his company, if it goes out of business and is worth zero, how much is the coin or token Nothing. that you bought worth? 
Okay. I still own it. So it's a, so to me, this just feels like a better form, a better version of stock, right? Than the stock market, but still the value isn't coming from the, the blockchain technology, but the improvement in the efficiency of how I can invest in someone else's company is due to the blockchain. But the value of picking the right token is still something independent of the blockchain, like this person's company. How do I get value from the blockchain itself? My version is owning the internet. How do I own the blockchain, not have, and I, this is technical, I have third-party risk, right, in this other guy's company or whatever else is going right. on it. I'm not I'm not making the argument that a company built on the crypto network is better than than this. I was answering the question of how Ethereum works, right? Okay, that right? makes sense. So Bitcoin But you said the game is finding tokens in projects. I'm saying if I were to go I'm saying if I were to go invest, truly invest, if I were to trying to multiply my money in the crypto space right now, I would be looking for projects that have massive use case ability to be used by mass users that have not blown up yet, I would buy a bunch of token rather than stock. And I would hope that the as the use increases, people need to buy okay. the token in order to be able to use the product, right? So in order for me to be able yes. to use the, like for example, imagine there's a, a video game. I'm gonna use video game example because it's, it's the best, right? Imagine that a video game's coming out. And in order for you to be able to play the video game, you needed a character, NFT, and you needed currency to play and buy stuff in that game. And I assumed that the value or, or that that video game was going to blow up, right? I could go buy the characters in that game because there's a limit, a fixed amount of characters. And I could go buy the currency because there's a fixed amount of currency. And I could buy that before everybody else yep. goes in and boom, similar to stock, right? It's just on the blockchain yep. and everything is moving towards the blockchain. So that's why I'm buying crypto yep. companies because I understand how all those things work. And I'm not doing a very good job of explaining everything in detail. I mean, this is a very, very basic. No, no, I, no, I think overview, I'm following. Right? And, and this has been my oversimplification of it. And, and this is Josh, just because you know who I right, am, right, right. right? It says it on your shirt, right? Cash yeah. flow, right? What, what I, I want people to understand is, and you did actually a great job of explaining it. What I want people to understand and where I'm still trying to get my head over is I don't yet believe crypto is an investment. It's a speculation, which is fine. That's not a negative term. 100%. We, you we just have to off, understand on a tangent what you're there. doing. But I'm saying you may be right. Let's, let's assume it's a store of value. I'm saying if, if we're assuming that it's going to be a store of value, right? Which your definition of a store of value is advise well, me the same today as it will in the future, right? Yes. So if yes. I assume that that's the case, I'm saying I think, number one, it is a store of value truly in the world today. Secondly, I also think it is an underpriced store of value. I think that we have not yet reached the point of mass adoption. We have not yet reached the value upon which it will go on out. And let's say it's a million bucks. Okay. I have no idea. I'm t this is in no way a prediction. Right. Let's just say it's a million dollars. It's $39,000 right now. I buy it for $39,000. The price goes to a million dollars. I am assuming that that million dollars, I know it's valued in dollars here, right? Like give this, but I'm assuming that the amount of Bitcoin, I own the same amount of Bitcoin, right? But I'm assuming that as time goes up, the value of that Bitcoin will increase in any currency because the value or the demand for Bitcoin right so now is very low. When you put it yes. in. Yeah. And 
and at a, in a more efficient way but, than putting it into anything yeah, else. Well, but, but, and then, but, and my, my big thing with Bitcoin, and this is the, the thing that we have not talked about yet. And I want to be respectful of your time here, but the big thing, the biggest thing about Bitcoin that I is the most important piece to me, which has far more to do with this than any other reason that I buy Bitcoin security. Can cannot be seized, right? You can't yep. take it. You so can't stop it. My, my, I own it. Yeah. And I'm not right on anything that I said and cool about it is neither you and we're both probably wrong right. on everything we said right. or who even knows, right? So my takeaways from this are, I, I, do agree, I do see the inherent value in what Bitcoin does. The fact that it's a, a sovereign payment system gives it inherent value. The demand will continue to rise for it. And, and I can, I like, especially when you see the events of like what's going on in Ukraine and just the, the even the truckers protest in Canada and oh. all that, like there is a need. For no that. third party completely. I, we didn't even get into that part of it, which is, yeah, but. A hundred percent. I, I believe I, I see that value. And then I see on the, where, where I don't think I'm on board is how underpriced it may be, but I do, I will acknowledge for the right person, there is an opportunity to cash in on that. So I don't disagree that actually I'm going to say, I do believe it's undervalued. Oh, it's, I just don't know by how much significantly undervalued. and I'm not going to spend my time figuring it out, but you might. And that's awesome. And that just like in the dot-com bubble, there's an unprecedented wealth creation opportunity, both on the Bitcoin side and the, the, the crypto world well, and side. The and it requires a skill set not unlike picking the right companies that were going to change the world as the world was changing when the internet came out. Okay, so the one piece that we're missing here on all this too, and this is the main, and we'll, we'll wrap up on this because we could go forever, but the one piece that we're missing is I believe the value of Bitcoin, I'm being very specific in my words here, Bitcoin yep. is security and for right now, let's call it an underpriced store of value. Right. Uh, well, so, I, and I think I'm and on the same page with you. On the crypto side of things, it's very easy to look at it and be like, well, it's just a better way to do stock. No, we do not have the time to dive into that. One of the biggest, one of the biggest things that you will see in the crypto space, not only is val uh, verification of digital ownership because of the blockchain, but is smart contracts. Because inside of a smart contract, right, you can actually program. So I can go through and I can see exactly what when I because I'm buying a when I'm buying a token, what I'm doing is I'm buying a fractional share of a contract. That's what I'm buying, right? And so if I am a company that is building a tech company or a tech business and I'm building this protocol, I can look at the protocol and I can see exactly what that protocol is. It is programmed to do, not what they're going to tell me it's going to do. I can actually look at the contract. I can actually look at what it's programmed to do and see where it will go. And I'll give you a perfect example. This is a, a simple use case. This is very simple in the, in the grand scheme of things. But for example, one guy wanted to go and he wanted to get massive amounts of attention, massive amounts of attention in the, in the NFT space. So he's like, you know what? You know what would get massive amount of attention? If I bought a CryptoPunk for $400 million, that would get some people's attention. So he goes to a guy, he doesn't have $4 million or $400 million. He goes to a guy that has $400 million in crypto and says, hey, I'd like to take out a loan. And the guy's like, cool, what do you have for collateral? It's like, well, nothing. He's like, all right, here's your loan. Gave, gives him the $400 million, okay? That $400 million was used to go buy this CryptoPunk. 
And then the sale went back to a wallet that that guy owned and then was immediately returned to the guy who originally loaned the money. And if at any point the crypto went to any other place besides that NFT, the whole entire transaction was canceled and the money was returned to, to the original wallet. So the guy who loaned the money for $400 million had zero risk of loaning out that money and he could take on no collateral because he knew exactly what the contract said. And the contract, if it was ever canceled the whole entire thing and it went back. So this guy went and borrowed $400 million, bought the NFT, immediately returned all the money, right? From it, made headlines that he just bought this $400 million NFT. He took them all 15 minutes. How was he able to do that? With no collateral, with no anything else, because the contract was programmed in and I could read exactly what it was. And so when you have a blockchain, which is completely decentralized, that everybody can read, that everybody can see, that never changes, that completely secure, completely unhackable, and you can build entire companies, entire contracts, entire data, everything on there for everyone to see. Now I can see what's gonna be happening. And I can see if you ever change it because everything is validated and everything is out in the open. Does that make sense? And nobody can stop or prevent those transactions from happening. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, it's the, it's the same value that Bitcoin brings to transactions, to contracts and ownership, right? It's a decentralized, securitized way to own it. I'm still fuzzy. Maybe this is, this is what I want to follow up with you on is how that smart contract makes me as an individual rich. Like there's still a gap in that other than, you know, I, I become good at picking and understanding and doing that. And that's what I... Because remember, like no, no, no. you uh, you are going your... to build your company on the blockchain in the future. All okay. of your companies and everything in there will be on the blockchain. All of your contracts, okay. all of your data, but... all of your finance, everything will be on the blockchain. Okay, so but again, an investment is how do I get rich from some you know from something independent of my own company? So I get how this is going to make all companies better, just like the internet made all companies better, right? And I better. The earlier I got on board, the faster I could make my company better than somebody who didn't, right? So this is, a, to me, it's still a very active play, right? As opposed to a place, okay, great. I built my company on the blockchain. I made a bajillion dollars. Now I want to invest that money. I'm still, I. it's not my skill set to then take my money that I made and go turn it into more money. No, that's on right. The yeah, that's big. I mean, well, Bitcoin is store of value. Crypto, crypto is for people that build. Crypto is the future of where money Got is going. It. That okay, that was the aha that I sort of needed. Is I better learn about this because it's going to be a competitive advantage in my ability. Not even money. is it going to be a competitive advantage. I mean, yes, that will be a competitive advantage. It will completely eliminate, like every like NFTs, every every car contract, business contract, house loan contract. Yeah, that, everything is going to be on the blockchain. The way we communicate on the blockchain. Yeah, that's the definition right. of a competitive advantage, right? And it's just going to be a very massive right. one, right? just similar to internet, like people that didn't have the internet, they just, they exactly. didn't make it. Right. And if we know anything about the evolution and you read this in, in books all the time, like the, 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 and this is where, this is where I'm actually feeling vulnerable and, and needing to get it figured out is the speed at which is, this is going to happen. And I think this is the argument you're making in this, and right? Cause right. like, and I'm saying you had a window that was like 20 years of the internet, right. To adopt it. Right. But every subsequent technology, when the wheel was invented, you maybe had a thousand years to get on board of the wheel, right? And you had 20 years to get on board of the internet. Like, how long do we have to get on board with this before we're totally okay? Okay, and that argument right there. Now, 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 now think. Now think about this, right? Now think back to when America was created. Imagine the value of gold back when we were on the gold standard, right? 
It was the thing upon which everything ran. Gold, what, it was the gold standard, right? Gold ran the world. You are going to a, into an industry that is going to take over absolutely every element of our lives, just like the internet did. And the currency that runs it all, everything follows one currency. It all follows Bitcoin. So as Bitcoin goes up, so the rest of the market goes, right? So you look at this and you go, okay, the entire world, all assets, all attention, all business is going this direction. I should, pro the easiest way to take advantage of that is to buy the reserve currency of all of that happening. That is Bitcoin. And so I say, cool, if I, I can't store it in dollars, gold, okay, maybe I can store it in. It's kind of old. It's not going to be not great on the internet, right? I, banks, at, they're not secure. I can, I can have my asset. Why wouldn't I not put all of my money, all of my savings, all of anything that if I don't know how to go invest and multiply money, why not just dump it in Bitcoin and ride it up until it levels out? And right now, I still think we're significantly underpriced, like massively underpriced compared to where it will be in 10 years. And yeah, I'll end on that. You might be right <laughs> yeah. on that. But I would go back to the argument that even when the gold was the reserve currency, it still bought the same amount of stuff it buys today. And other than blips of like gold rush times and economic collapses when demand genuinely you know goes up disproportionately to the value that actually creates right there is money made in volatility right but you're in and out of something to make money in volatility you're describing there's going to be volatility upward but the only way to make money is you convert it back into something else that's the only people that made money in gold during the volatile times were in and out of it they were they were, I, was, that I, was their, I think it's going to be reversed i think endeavor. you're going to trade in and out of bitcoin like you're going to trade out of Bitcoin to make more so that you can buy back into Bitcoin. And, and this is where my brain doesn't solve the problem of, all right, if that's what's going to happen, then a thousand years from now or a hundred years or 20 years from now, the Bitcoin won't buy any more stuff than it does now. So why do I need to get in? I'm going to go make my money. And then just like gold, I don't put all of my money in gold. I put enough in there to be protected against what I want to be protected right. against. And I go back to production or I go to product that these are three categories of protection in the environment that we're in. I want to make more money. I want my assets to make more money and then I want to be protected. So I can see it here. I don't yet see the value of it for me personally, for somebody that wants to be a, like, there are people that make money in gold, like legitimately, even though just on the volatility, they could do that. It's not going to be my business, but it could be someone else's. But I, I'm having a hard time seeing Bitcoin playing how the role here i just haven't made that yeah, connection i think, quite I think you yet. made some interesting points though though and i think i do need to go research and understand that part of it a little bit more because you're right bitcoin doesn't cash flow right uh i understand what you're talking about as far as the store of value is concerned where it's like if it buys me the exact same amount now as it as it will in the future but guess what that has never been the case so far with bitcoin bitcoin has gone up i don't know over the last hundred years or over the last 10 years or whatever its average increase is like i don't know it's like 700 percent increase year over year right, right. it's been averaging so like you're and 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 faster no, than inflation, the, faster than we're like the only thing that's going up faster than yeah. inflation the amount of the uh, the speed of which the government is printing is Bitcoin. It's the only asset that's going up. Maybe not the only one, but one of the only ones. And right. it's completely secure. Digital energy can't be seized. 100% transaction. I can send it across the world, transfer it, store it. And if the whole entire network goes out, I can yeah. wake up in 50 years and it's still going to be there. And no one can take it, and I can take it to the grave with me. Right? There's so yeah. many competitive things. And dude. I'm yeah. And dude, I've read the stories. There's actually a really cool book I got just because of what you were talking about called the Fiat Standard. This dude, like, he is only alive because he had Bitcoin. How so? 
and it, it was all the security stuff because his government collapsed and he had enough money in Bitcoin where he could leave and rebuild and do all the things, right? Okay. I'm Where'd here. you hold go? On, hold on. Read the I'm here. Sorry. Here we go. But it was less about the book. It was more about the author of it. His story was this, intriguing. Right here. Token, Token this economy. This is probably the most important book you need to read. Bitcoin standard is pretty good. The, the thing about, and I, 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 I have to run. <laughs> I have to run now. Um, but... Let me end with this, though. What we need to do is we need to come back and have an actual conversation about blockchain. And we need to actually understand tokens, cool. not just Bitcoin in the sense, not just about Bitcoin, because I did a, a very, very subpar or inadequate job of explaining what you'll learn, not only in this book, but when you understand how the token economy like works, you're no longer going to be bought. Like you won't buy a subscription to Netflix or a subscription to the New York Times. You will buy a fractional piece of that. And as more and more users want that, the value will continue to go up, right? And so it's like, there's so many pieces of the token economy and how smart contracts work and how the blockchain works and how, how we can print currency and borrow monies and all these different things from that to create value that we didn't even get to touch on and talk about today. And so when you look at that and when you start to understand, of, oh my gosh, like this isn't going to be as big as the internet, it was going to be bigger and everything is going to flow this direction. What is the simplest, lowest cost, easiest, set it and forget about it way to get involved in this like this new economy and just ride it up? It's like, okay, cool. Buy stock in Amazon and let it sit. But you didn't know that. Bitcoin, we do. We do know that directly proportionate, the rest of the, the market is directly, so far has been directly proportionate to the value of Bitcoin. And so that's what we're looking at. And that's what you're betting on. So fun with that. Yeah. And, and. And that's, that's where I'm admittedly completely ignorant is really like actually understanding those elements of it. And maybe, maybe that absolutely is the gap and you know who you invited on. So I needed to push from a, Hey, what about like an investment perspective, historical perspective, understanding all of that. So I, I hope in the back and forth, um, like I stand where I stand, you stand, but I hope people got a better view of yeah, understanding sure. and then being like, Ooh, I need to learn more about this. I, cause now I've got a list of Dude, okay, I need to understand more about this Bring and this, this and this and this to be able to really talk open up a whole new thing. You walked away with your list and that's yep. where we got to go. Yep. For sure. Brad, thank you for your time. But I'll send you this book. Token Economy, like awesome. it's probably on Audible too. Like it just like, yeah. Like I'm that. Sure. that's probably for you to understand not the Bitcoin side of things, but more of the smart contract to the what's actually coming in crypto. Not like, uh, where's the, how are we going to make some, like actually what's about to revolutionize the whole world. That'll give you a good example. Brad, I appreciate your time. Two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, been rocking. I, I appreciate your time coming on here. Thank you so much. Two final questions for you. I asked everybody at the end of the podcast. Number one, what is, uh, what is one unchanging truth that you have known to be true from the beginning of your life until now, it's never changed. We oftentimes we hear advice, but advice changes over time. What is a piece of advice, a truth that you know to be true that has never changed since, that, since you've been alive? I'm gonna cheat and give you two answers. One is God exists and he's our father and he loves us. That's one, uh, that's never changed for me. And two, the best investment you can ever always make is in yourself and in growing and developing first and foremost, you are your most sovereign, greatest asset. Love it. Appreciate it. Second question for you. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, you have 24 hours left on this earth. You absolutely knew it was going to happen 100%. What would you do? Who would you tell? 
I would fight with everybody on Facebook about every important issue. Man, after my own heart. No, of course. <laughs> I, I, I would disappear and talk to nobody except my wife and my kids because that's, at the end of the day, the only ones I would sit with them for the 24 hours and share everything that I know and hold most dear to me with them because they're the ones that are going to carry on my legacy. Love it. Brad, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the Josh Forty Effect. It's always fun having you on. Dude, I love it, man. All right, man. Look forward yeah, of to course. next time. Talk to you soon. Guys, See if you, you uh, haven't subscribed yet, smash the subscribe button, follow button, leave a comment, let us know your thoughts, and we'll see you guys next time. Take it easy, fam. Peace.